Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. We are super excited for another great episode of Juanced. Before we get going today, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, for those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there is a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. Check it out when we record or watch all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juwans Podcast, as well as our website. You guessed it, juwans.com. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram. We are at Juwanced and on Twitter at Juwanced Podcast for all the updates. And as always, if you have not yet, make sure to subscribe to Juwanced on Spotify, Apple, Google, Podcast, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star review. It makes a difference, we think. We don't actually know. We hope it makes a difference. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. We're, we're chilling here with Dan Levinson, the man himself. Hello. You have a great name, Dan. Yes. Coming to us live from? From Chicago, Illinois. Amazing. Chicago, Chicago or like suburbs? Oh, Chicago, Chicago. My kids are actually, they're very aggrieved when they meet somebody from the suburbs who claims to be from Chicago. You know, they're city kids and they think that that should not be allowed. Awesome. 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 How's What's the weather like in Chicago? It can probably change like every hour at this time of year. Yeah. I, I do. I have like a little studio in my basement. So I'm not 100% sure, but it was raining and drizzling. And actually, there were some snow flurries earlier, but snow. not sticky. Snow. Yep. Okay. It was like 95 and humid today here in Israel. Um, we, yeah. I'm from Minnesota originally, and uh, which which is definitely um, we we have that like claim to fame where it's like we're colder than 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 you at all times. But even at April 20th, to have snow would be rare. Well, it snowed all across like the Midwest right now. There the snow flurries in late April. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's not sticking, so you know it's not real snow. Maybe. But I actually lived in Minnesota for a few years before Did we you? lived to Chicago. Yeah, and I, I would nice. always say that I'm one of the few people that moved to Chicago for the good weather. Good times. <laughs> Frozen yeah. chosen. Exactly. And I, I grew up in northern Indiana and when I meet people from other parts of the world and they ask where I'm from, I just say Chicago out of like just not wanting to explain where northern Indiana is. So his so what Dan just said is that his children. I know they don't. Like they they wouldn't like that. They tell your yeah, children. No, I, tell your children. I apologize. If you met them at camp, you, you would need to stay away from my kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What what camp do they go to? Well, they don't really go to camp. Well, no, I mean they have gone to camp. They have. I went. <laughs> I was an Azrui kid, which is a lot of Chicago people go mm-hmm. to go to Azrui. Um, before we kick off the episode, we got a great episode today where we are talking with the co founder, co-creator of the very awesome Judaism Unbound podcast and a lot of other things that we will introduce shortly, Dan Liebenson. But before we do that, just one quick announcement. 
So check it out, everybody. As you know, Juanced is a listener-supported podcast. Uh, we rely on the generous support of listeners like you to make sure that we keep this party going and bring the great guests that we get on the show. Uh, so you might want to think about making a contribution and join people in over 114 countries. 114 that countries. Welcome to the newest listener from Libya. I would love to know <laughs> who that person is. We, we have listeners in Mongolia. We now have uh, Peru and uh, Libya. Welcome, listener from Welcome, Libya. the ghost of uh, Muammar Gaddafi. I'm worried about getting that guy in trouble. I yeah. hope not. I hope there's not, uh, you know, some poli- right. police looking for the Jewanced listener. All right. So if, if you want to join uh, our Libyan friend and, and <laughs> listeners from over 114 countries, please make a, a, a contribution to the show. You can make a one-time contribution on our PayPal or an ongoing contribution on our Patreon. Even better. You know, our listener base is growing all across the world. And so if you want to become a regular contributor to the show, go to our website, juanced.com. So we encourage you to do that. Good times all around. So Dan, what do we got going on today on the show? Today we are going to be talking about the future of Judaism. Dan Liebenson is the founder and president of the Institute for the Next Jewish Future. He's the co-host of the popular Judaism Unbound podcast, of which I am one of the many fans of, and co-creator of Jewish Live, where he co-hosts the weekly live streaming video series, The Oral Talmud, with Bene Lape. I hope I pronounced her name right. Dan is also the co-creator of Text People, a new project making Jewish texts maximally accessible to a broad audience through short videos and other media. He's the translator of The Orchard, a fantastic book by the renowned Israeli novelist Yochi Brandes, a novel about the early days of rabbinic Judaism, and translation editor of The Secret Book of Kings, by the same author, another fantastic book, a radical retelling of the stories of the early kings of Israel. He spent over a decade working with Jewish students on campus at Harvard and at the University of Chicago, for which he received numerous awards, including Hill's Exemplar of Excellence Award and an Avichai Fellowship. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School and spent five years as a law professor, and he now lives in Chicago. Welcome to Juwan Stan Liebenson. Thanks. It's so great to be here. It's, an, it's really awesome having you. Um, you are for me, uh, Benny, Benny's new to you and to what you do, but I've been following you for a couple of years now where we met when I interviewed you for my upcoming book on the kind of where American Judaism is going. So, um, I didn't know you were a Harvard trained law professor though. <laughs> Total underachiever. Kind of, kind of buried that. <laughs> to keep that under 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 wraps it's like you and Barack um, Obama. i actually noticed that you're having me on before the book comes out so if i'm aggrieved by what's in the book <laughs> I... <laughs> it's it's stuck in editing land it's taking me forever to get through it <laughs> and now i'm trying to update it to uh to what COVID is doing to judaism so uh, yeah. it, could, it could be definitely a few more months before it comes out um how are you a harvard law professor well, well, I'm not Why exactly a Harvard Law professor <laughs> because I went to Harvard Law School, but I taught elsewhere. You taught elsewhere. Um, I mean, I, you know, the even even the darker little deep dark secret of my life is that I started off in medical school. <laughs> I don't even put that on my resume because because I quit in the middle. Um, actually, I, I feel like I took a leave of absence that I'm still on, but my wife thinks that I can't claim to be on a leave of absence after you know 20, 20 years or more. Um, but I, you know, I. I um, Actually, you know, I'd gone to, I'd planned to go to medical school all my life, and and then I got there and realized I didn't really want to be a doctor, and so it felt like, you know, in your sort of average Jewish family, you're going to be a lawyer. dropping out of medical school isn't an option. So <laughs> the, the way out was to go to law school. 
and um and, your and then when i finished law school i never really intended to be a lawyer so i didn't know what i wanted to do so i figured teaching would be a good lifestyle and and um you know i, I enjoyed that but what i realized actually and that's the connection to what i'm doing now was that i didn't have a passion for it and i was actually teaching at a catholic law school for the last three years and i Which was one? very one? excited it's called the university of st thomas that's why i lived in oh, uh, minnesota Minneapolis. we were talking yeah. about that earlier down, down, down and yeah, um and I was very excited about the Catholic mission of the law school. Like I thought it was interesting to have a religious um, interplay between religion and, and American law. And it's also dangerous, but there's interesting stuff going on there. And I was into it. And at a certain point, I kind of realized I was more into that than, than the law. And I felt like, you know, I could have stayed at the law school and, and done all kinds of things there. But I felt like, you know, if I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to turn around some kind of dysfunctional religious institution that might as well be my own. <laughs> that was basically how I got into this. Well, what's your, your kind of Jewish origin story? If you, if you don't mind, like what's your, uh, well, what's your upbringing? I, the way I tell it is my, my dad was a conservative rabbi in Long Island, New York, uh, till I was 14. And then we made Aliyah and moved to Israel when I was 14. I didn't want to go. Uh, so I experienced I experienced both as kind of oppressive. Like I didn't like being a rabbi's son and I didn't like going <laughs> to Israel when I was not prepared for that. And then we actually ended up in a, uh, the Orthodox, you know, the, the religious school system, which I was not prepared for, even though I'd gone to a day school in America, but it was a very different situation. Sure. Also, this was the mid eighties where, you know, the religious world in Israel had kind of I, I, my sense of it is it lost some self-confidence and had kind of outsourced the religious part of things to the ultra-Orthodox. And it was just totally something that I wasn't prepared for, that there was it was a it was a modern Orthodox kind of school. But the head of the religious studies at the school was an ultra-Orthodox rabbi. And it was just completely foreign to me. So where, I, I feel where, like I had all these very where, intense. Where in Israel was this? Jewish, this is what? What school? Where? Yeah, where in Israel? Uh, this was in the um, Technology School in Bar Ilan University. Mm. I mean, now it's outside of Bar Ilan University. But um, where, where and, were you guys living? Um, where were you living when you made Aliyah? I was living right across the street from Bar Ilan oh, University in, 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 in Gibbet Shmuel. Yeah. And um, so I had this like very intense, very, I learned a lot. I, I, you know, I was a smart kid who, who studied, you know, so I, I got a lot of information out of this experience. But a, a sort of very negative affect. And, um, and um, so, you know, so, so what happened was that I read the book who wrote the Bible when I was 17 and that gave me a completely new lens through which to look at all oh. this Jewish stuff that before that I hadn't really liked very much. And I was very excited about it. I mean, a lot of people, I think read biblical scholarship and they say, Oh, so the whole thing is BS. So I, I can be secular now, you know? And uh, my, my experience was like, no, this is something that I actually can believe in. And it got me really excited. So that, that was kind of my way back into it. I, I want to get into that because, um, I want to get into that kind of, I want to get through you and try to understand you a little bit more because we've talked in in a professional context of who you are now, but I've never, you know, we've talked a few times, but I've never actually gotten to know you. And Benny, of course, is meeting you for the first time here. So, um, you know, I, I definitely want to get to that because you're doing a really interesting, or you, I don't know, if, I think you finished, but you did a really interesting series on your show um, about kind of biblical criticism and biblical scholarship. And, and I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I listened to it as, um, someone who is kind of more on the religious side, but it's still fascinating to me. And, and I think, you know, I guess we'll get to this later, but what you and your co-host Lex get to a lot is 
it doesn't matter. It's it it's you know, it doesn't matter if if you know who wrote it or if it was man made or whatever. And and I think that's something we can definitely jump into. But so you're saying you grew up a rabbi's son, a conservative rabbi's son in Israel. Um, did he go to be a conservative rabbi or was he doing something else in Israel at the time or was it just to make Aliyah or what was the story? Yeah, no. So, I mean, I was a conservative rabbi's son in America and then when we came to Israel, he became an English teacher. Got so it. I was an Israeli English teacher's son. So how long did you uh, live in Israel? Four years because I, I didn't want to go. So the deal was I would, I would sort of come, Got I wouldn't it. say willingly, but I would, I would agree to come kicking and screaming and, and stay for four years. And then I'd go back for college in America, which is what I did. Got so, it. So you're, you're begrudgingly living in Givat Shmuel and Ramat Gan in Israel for four years. Did you, did you find a way to, you know, despite the begrudgingness to, the uh, begrudgingness? to somehow get along and, and make friends and, uh, or, or were you, were you begrudged throughout? <laughs> I, a- I mean, I did get along and make friends, but I, I would, I was always begrudging. I mean, I, um, I actually had a big, huge American flag on my wall I, as in, in addition to a poster of the A team. I remember, um, I was just basically created this little American bubble for myself where, where I kind of, you know, would go out and be, be in Israel on the street, but in my own room, I was in America. Yeah, it's I, I know a lot of people who do that today. Yeah, there's there's definitely a ton of people who do that today here in Israel that have li- been living here for you know four years is nothing to them. They've been living here their whole lives. And I, I know people who have been here for thirty years and can barely speak Hebrew. Right, <laughs> it's insane. Which which A team character was your favorite? Uh, it, definitely Mr. T. I was gonna uh, guess with you, I was gonna guess face. No, yeah, no, it was. Uh, now I can't even remember who's his name of his character on the show. Uh, B A Barakas. Yeah, B A Barakas. Yeah, of course. Love yeah. the uh, love I used the to original. Draw him and I really liked drawing the Mohawk. Got it. Got it. <laughs> did you see? Did you see the remake of the A Team? I don't think I saw it. I, I know of it, but I, I don't think it's I saw fun. it. Because by that time, I mean that's the interesting thing is like I think about myself as a teenager and how patriotic I felt for America, and and I still care a lot about America. But I mean, I wouldn't sort of have that same kind of level of patriotism and and uh same thing like for me i think what the a-team represented was what it, it was a symbol more than it was you know that i love the a-team in particular <laughs> yeah so okay. you know as an adult when the remake came out you know I'm like yeah whatever i had to watch it just uh but it was like it was one of those shows i don't know if you, you ever watched it but like, no, I didn't they would literally fire thousands of bullets from an automatic rifles and no one would ever get shot like no one would ever get shot in that show. Like they would just be able to kind of slowly run away and duck under the bullets. <laughs> right. It's it's funny. I was watching Jurassic 80s Park. 80s TV. I was watching Jurassic Park the other day with my kids and they have a Jurassic Park kids version. Uh, and, it's, and it's like that. It's like the dinosaurs somehow never are able to eat any of the characters on the show. Yeah, right. In the original like, Jurassic Park, almost everyone gets Everyone eaten. dies. <laughs> So, so especially you, Samuel Jackson. So that's that's that answers one of our questions: Where your Hebrew is good enough from to translate a book into English? I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I I learned about translation because the truth is that I did it. I mean, I've, I'm an amateur. I, I mean, I didn't. I don't have any training. W- one thing that I realized though, in in seeing what other translators were doing and how sometimes I wasn't happy with what other translators were doing is that I think the most important thing in translation is to be fluent in the language that you're translating into. hundred percent. And you can kind of figure stuff, you know, if you don't quite understand the first time when you read it in the original language, you can, especially now with Google translate and all kinds of things, you can work through it and figure it out. So, you know, I feel like my Hebrew is 
is good enough. Uh, it's not necessarily perfect. I, I translate also from, uh, I used to do both, but my English is far stronger than my Hebrew. And, and so my, my Hebrew translations are workable, but clunky. My English translations are a lot better. And yeah, you have to, you have to be fluent, like native language in the language you're translating into. Otherwise you just miss, you know, cultural things. That That's amazing though, that you did, yeah. um, Yochi Brandis's book. Um, cause it's a fantastic book. I mean, it's, it's such a wonderful story. How did you yeah, get involved it, with that? Well, it connects to these things that we're talking about. So I had, I'm trying to remember exactly when this was, but I, I'm trying to remember if it was after we had started the podcast already. I don't think so. I think it was before we had started the podcast, but I was thinking about the same things that I'm still thinking about. And, you know, in the, in biblical criticism, you know, academic study of the Bible, there's a lot of, a lot of attention paid to the idea of the two kingdoms, the Northern kingdom yeah. and the Southern kingdom. And in the Bible, the, which is written by people living in the Southern kingdom, the, the, the Southern kingdom and its heroes, King David, for example, Solomon, uh, they're, they're seen as these great heroes. And the North is like, oh, they always did evil in the sight of God. And, you know, they deserve to be destroyed early and all this terrible things about the North. So I'm, I'm going to have to be, I'm um, going to have to be annoying here and stop you and, and say, the Bible was written by the people in the Southern Kingdom. Oh, are we getting into the book you read that you mentioned? Because we're going to have the, to get into- who, wrote the, who wrote the Bible. Yeah, it- I, I mean, I'm not even talking about the Torah because we can we can debate about the Torah and who who wrote it. I, they, even the rabbis are there's no there's no uh, controversy in the Talmud that that the other books of the Bible were written by human right. beings. And so I'm even talking about who wrote the Book of Kings. And, you know, just a book of Samuel, you know, and just just sort of those those histories. And I mean, I also believe that similar people wrote the Torah, but that um, that that they really have either an agenda or it's true, you know, that that the South is the the good kingdom that really uh, took seriously God's commands. And the North was these, you know, bunch of, you know, trying to assimilate into the Syrian Empire and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it ultimately served them poorly because. They got destroyed, and um, I and 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 I think that stories are so powerful in terms of our ability to conceptualize possibility. Mm-hmm. And if our only stories are about this particular small kingdom, and that was a you know like many mountain kingdoms are kind of uh, fundamentalistic and extreme, and all kinds of things like that, it has characteristics of mountain kingdoms. You know then. If that's the only way to be Jewish, then it's kind of hard to imagine something else without somebody telling you, oh, that's not authentic or that's bad or whatever. So I remember talking to my sister about how I wish there was a novel about the Northern Kingdom, huh. where the Northern Kingdom were the good guys. And some, and we we knew nice things about the Northern Kingdom, because then I could think to myself, well, like, maybe I come from the Northern Kingdom, people, <laughs> you know. And she said, oh, there actually is a novel like that. It's just came out or recently came out and it's called Malachim Gimel by Yochi Brandis, the, the, which in English strictly would be the third book of Kings. We right. translated, we ended up titling it the secret book of Kings because of concern that Americans would say this is the third book of Kings. Well, I didn't read the first two, so yeah. I'm not going to buy the third one. Right? Um, I didn't see the first one, I didn't see the sequel. That was the genesis of it. And then I, I, you know, with Israel, it's different from, you know, you can really write Stephen King an email and experience and expect that he would uh, write you back. But with Israeli stars, you know, country. you can kind of send them an email and they'll write you back. 
And so I just sent Yochi Brandis an email and said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing this stuff in America. And I really it's important to me that your story be available to American readers. Have you tried to get it translated? And the long and the short short of it was we ended up uh, cool. working together to get it translated. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It, it's, for, the, for those of you who aren't aware, um, I, I read I have Melachim Gimel. I actually never read it because it, it's a project for me to read a book in Hebrew. Um, but I read uh, in the orchard of Akiva or a Pardeshel Akiva. I don't know what you called it in English. Yeah, it's the orchard. The orchard. And um, it, it's the, the, first of all, the amount of scholarship she puts in to get what, what we know historically accurate. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's just wonderful historical fiction that she fills in. Right. Um, yeah. And so she did one about kind of like a different take on the time of King David, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, King David and and um, and and Saul and the, basically that period and and the period of Solomon and after Solomon and, and she had, if I'm not mistaken, like do all her books add kind of like a feminist perspective on these on these time periods? Yeah, they did. That had a feminist perspective and and definitely feminine voices or yeah. voices of women. Um, you know, what I, I just on the scholarship, I think it's really important to point out because a lot of times people read her books and they think either she made something up or she made a mistake. And I would say 100 percent of the time, it's probably not. I mean, probably she makes mistakes. So maybe it's 99.9 percent .9 of the time. But if you read something in one of her books and say that's wrong or that's not from a source, it, it is from a source. Yeah. And she's done yeah. this incredible scholarship where she's found like these alternative tellings in the Bible or in the Talmud. There's even one in the orchard where um which, which is about people, the life of rabbi akiva the, and his yeah the early rabbis yeah. and there's this famous story you know about the four rabbis who go into a pardes whatever that means exactly an orchard you know it's translated as an orchard but maybe it means something a little different but um a mystical experience right. and there's uh in the story that that the talmud the babylonian talmud tells uh one of the characters ben ben zoma uh goes mad and ben azai dies right and in her book, The Orchard, Benazai goes mad and Benzoma dies. So all these people are always coming to me and saying, like, oh, she made a terrible mistake. You know, she she reversed the characters. And I and I say, like, no, no, no. That's that version of the story is in the Jerusalem Talmud, which oh, is older than the Babylonian yeah. Talmud. So you think that she's made a mistake. It's actually potentially the Babylonian Talmud that's made a mistake. And, you know, it's it's just like there's something like that for everything where you kind of are skeptical of her books. It's incredible. I heard her give a lecture uh, here in Rehovot, actually. It was on, um, I forget when it was, a few years back, right when, when The Orchard came out in Hebrew. And she gave a lecture together with Rabbi Benny Lau, who's mm -hmm. a very uh, noted historian and, and rabbi. And he, he was basically saying, yeah, the scholarship she put in, and I think she based a lot of her stuff on his scholarship also yeah. because he's, you know, written volumes on, on those, those periods. So, so you come back from Israel, you go to college. Um, what, what's the influence of, of this book that you read on your, your thinking and like your Jewish journey, let's call it? Well, I think if I hadn't read that book, I mean, who knows, but I feel like if I hadn't read that book, I would have felt very liberated when I came back for college and I would have more or less dropped out of Judaism. Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows what would have happened? You know, it's not like I plan to convert to another religion or anything, but like I would have been like just not particularly interested. I would have felt it was a relief to get away from that sort of oppressive Jewish experience that I, I felt that I had. Were your parents um, were your parents in are they still in Israel at this point? Are they still in Israel uh, today? At this point today. Uh, so while well, my mom passed away uh, about five years ago, my dad so kind that. of splits his time between Israel and the U.S. now. 
Uh, but but still basically lives there. So, and so my mom. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to set the set the set the the stage here. So you went back to America by yourself, and and this is right. all taking place when you're by yourself. Okay. Right. So I, I went. Well, I came back by myself. This was in '88, uh, and uh, and then you know so that's that's already 30 some years later, right? Uh, 30 plus years ago. Um, so my dad. Uh, so. Um, so, so I, so when I read, but I, when I read this book, it, I was actually a senior in high school. So I was still in Israel. It was actually, I, I really remembered because I, I was not a very good student in like Bible. I, I didn't get very good grades, but I, I turned out to do very well in the Bible Bagrut test, you know, the uh, end of high school test. And that was because I had read this book who wrote the Bible. And I was so into the Bible from this other perspective mm. that I, I just was like studying on my own. And I, I learned so much that year that I actually did well on the like national test, you can, know, but, um, can I ask uh, you, so I, yeah, where, where was the book? Where did you so find some, the book? Somehow my dad, uh, somebody had lent it to my dad, like somebody from the synagogue had lent it to my dad, you know, like my, my dad was not particularly, um, you know, you know, wasn't and isn't particularly uh, conservative religiously, you know, like he, he was very open. I mean, that they, our family practice was more traditional than than mine is now or than I would choose. But but there wasn't a sense that there were any ideas that were forbidden. It was just that, um, and you know, it was hard to get English books in Israel at, at that time. So somehow this this book ended up in my dad's hands. I think somebody in the synagogue lent it to him. And I don't remember if he suggested that I read it or it was just lying around the house and I opened it up and started reading it and I just I just was swept into it. So what, and, you, and you couldn't put it down basically. I couldn't put it down so, and and not only that and and at the time I, I was still I remember um, writing like a twelve page handwritten letter to the author where I was actually um, asking like skeptical questions of all kinds of things because at this time like I was still I still knew what Rashi said about things so I was kind of skeptical on the one hand about what was written there and wanted to know more information because it didn't accord with what I'd been taught but at the same time I was fascinated by it and and I remember one particular thing that really fascinated me was this idea that that Moses is a figure from the northern kingdom and that he was he was sort of a hero of the northern kingdom. And when you have the Levite priests that are described, the, the Levite priests are different from the, the Kohanim, the Aaronid, the priests, the priest priests. And the Levite priests were the priests of the north and the priests, the Kohanim were the priests of the south. And Aaron was the hero of the priests of the south, and Moses was the hero of the priests of the north. And there's all kinds of evidence in the Bible and in the Torah of, of that, once you sort of know what you're looking for. And the upshot of it, of course, is that Moses and Aaron weren't really brothers. You know, that they were two different uh, heroes from two different traditions, that when those two groups merged at a later point, they had to weave together their traditions. They said, okay, well, we'll make them into brothers. And I thought that was the most incredible, awesome thing that I had ever heard. You know, that was so exciting to me that they, that, 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 you know, and because, and I wasn't like, this is so BS. I was like, this is so awesome. Like, we actually have a history that is different from what I learned, but it's real, you know, and it, and it's, and this is maybe like what really happened. And so instead of being not a believer, right, instead of defining myself negatively as not a believer, I was able to define myself positively as a believer in this historical perspective. And that just changed everything for me. That made me interested in everything that I had been un uninterested in before. So I, I, I love two things out of that that I love more than anything else, which is that one, that 
if that person had not lent that book or given that book to your father and you had not found it in the house on that day, and, and let's for a second imagine that scene that you, you went into the house and you saw a book lying, I don't know where it was on the table or you know, sometimes in the bathroom, God knows, or like, you know, it's like, oh, I'll pick this up and read it. And it literally changed the course of your life. Yeah. And, it, and, and we read so many things. And then, you know, you have a, a wall of books. You're ensconced in your, your academic book. And the only one that I see sticking out is Tour Israel because I work in Israeli tourism and I love that you have the book. It's actually but, a game that my father is designed. Terrific. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 it, and it changes your life. And that's so crazy because it's, it's literally like every single day there's opportunities that we have that we could get into something or we make a choice and, and we have no idea where it might go. And here there was something that we, that could have been so benign, but it turned out to be so profound that it, that it, you know, gave you a complete and total course correction in many ways. And the other yeah. thing is that in it, 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 literally what you just said, which is that in the context of the story of, or how things have been recorded or written, there is a truth. The, the, the truth is there. We don't know what it is. Um, mm -hmm. you can choose to believe one thing or the other, but there, there is something that actually happened. And I'm in, you know, I, I, I'm a constant seeker of these sorts of things myself. And it's always fascinating to me to think like, you know, there were these people that were in tribal contexts or, or, or tribal, uh, societies. And they, for whatever reason, decided to write down, uh, their narratives and to write down their stories. And I don't know if they really f could have ever, uh, conceived where it would go in terms of right. you know, fast forward several thousand years, there'll be this thing called the Jewish people and all these tremendous and, events would have happened to them. And spin like Christianity and, and Islam. spin-offs and Islam. It's like, <laughs> you know. it's like the guy was probably just trying to record the story because it's like, all right, this is what I do. We have to write, write the history down. And then like it became this thing. But the truth is that something happened and, and, and we've been in this eternal quest to try to discover what that might've been. And it's really led to some, some conflicts throughout time i mean to say the least um and and i like your take on it i like that instead of turning you off to say this is this is bs this is all crap you're, you're all believing in nonsense it's like well, wait let's you know let's try to get really passionate about what actually happened and and and, and you know start out on a quest um take, take us more on your quest until we get to the launch of judaism unbound and kind of the the jewish future that you're dealing with now and then i want to get back to a discussion on these actual points also yeah. Well, I never imagined doing this professionally. I mean, the truth is I, I should have, but it it was so, so, such a foreign idea to me, especially since I was still kind of trying to get away from something. It just didn't occur to me that I would want to do this. So, for example, it didn't occur to me really to consider majoring in Near Eastern studies in college, even though like in retrospect, and at the time I was already interested, I was auditing classes, but it didn't occur to me to like major in it because I knew I was going to be a doctor. You know, you so wanted to please kind of like, Jewish doctor. Yeah, it just never. So so the idea that I would sort of do something like this professionally never crossed my mind until much, much later. I did get involved in Hillel in college because I found it to be a very, um, you know, a, a kind of pluralistic space which I had never experienced before. I now have feelings about its, the limitations of its pluralism. But at the time, it was very exciting to me to be in a place where all the different denominations could be. And and there wasn't a sense that one was right and the others were wrong. I mean, some people thought that, but yeah, sure. there wasn't a sense in the space. And so it was very exciting to me. And I became the president of the Hillel and undergrad and, and everything. So that was a big part of my life as as kind of a 
you know, a, a hobby, but it, it never seemed like anything I would do professionally. And and so then, you know, I went on that odyssey from medical school to law school to being a law professor. And, um, and um, so I, and I, I, at a certain point, actually somebody, this is another one of those like little, but four stories, Benny, like that somebody called my wife who had been involved, you know, she was involved, I think, in Hadassah or something. And she was like one of the few young people that's involved, you know, so they called her and they said that there was a job opening at uh, at a Hillel. Would she be interested in, in applying for it? And she had no interest whatsoever in, in doing that. Mm-hmm. But she told me about it. And somehow it struck me that like, oh, maybe I would be interested in that. Oh. And um and that, then I just, you know, I don't remember the details anymore, but like my head started churning and, and eventually I, I didn't, uh, I didn't go to that hill, but that was the genesis of feeling like, oh, you know, I reached a point in my life where I think I was in my mid thirties and I was like, well, I guess I could get the job. I mean, I, I had, you know, like five years before, 10 years before I wouldn't have been able to be hired as a hill director. So I reached a point where like I had enough paper qualifications that I could actually get the job. And, and I felt like, oh, well, that that's the, and the truth is that because I had, uh, lived in Israel in my teenage years, I didn't know a whole lot about the American Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And so my only uh, American Jewish experience as an adult had been through Hillel. And so at the point at which I said, like, I want to do something Jewish, it would be more meaningful to me as a career. Hillel almost felt like the only option because I didn't know anything. And that was the genesis. So then I, I came to the University of Chicago Hillel at that time. And and um, and then the, the the path to what I'm doing now is basically that you know, I always came, I mean, I always came to Hillel and to, to the Jewish world saying, like, I had the I had the accidental benefit to have these this set of experiences where I didn't like Judaism as it w- tended to be uh, expressed in general, but I had this optimistic sense that it could be otherwise. And so I always I came into Hillel to be like a turnaround person to say like oh let's let's do it differently and we were very successful. And um, what does that mean? So what, what did you do differently? Uh, well, like, what like what are we, some things that you didn't connect with that then you proposed something new? Because most of the time people people especially at that age, I guess in all ages, people say like you know I, I don't like this. Okay, I'm just going to stop going right as opposed to I don't like this. I'm going to create something new. Right. Some of the things that we did then are are pretty standard in Hillel's now. Um, some of them were things that Hillel International was was uh, doing and that we sort of jumped on. Some of them were things that we created. But uh, the the a, a key part of it was to sort of push Hillel out of a building and to say uh, the building is not Hillel. That Hillel is not a place. Hillel is a an, a, an entity that pushes outward, mm. and mm. that it was really more about um, connecting with each and every individual Jewish student and offering them a path that was right for them, as opposed to feeling like you have to come into this communal space and kind of put your identity on hold if it doesn't quite accord. And there are pros and cons to, to both, but we were able to reach much, much higher numbers sure. of students in a more profound way by, by pushing out. Oh, and yeah. um, that, that was the sort of the big idea. But, but I remember that um, when we would describe this to board members, sometimes the board member would say, wow, I, you know, I just, uh, I'm an empty nester now. And I realized that my whole Jewish life was all about, you know, sending my kids to Hebrew school and doing these things that I thought you were supposed to do. And now I realized that I wasn't really getting anything out of it. And uh, I wish that I could be one of those students because I, I really wish that I could get that kind of 
personalized journey to try to find what I care about in terms of Judaism. And that was where I started to understand like this was not actually a generational thing. This was not just about students. This was not just about young people, that the vast majority of Jews of all ages actually don't have a really strong reason for being Jewish. Right. And they haven't had this experience of saying, I really want to be Jewish. And so that was where we ended up kind of through some other machinations turning into the podcast and beyond of saying like, let's do this for everybody. You just pushed me back to like a flashback of me riding in the car with my father to temple Israel Sunday school and me being like, what? I was a smart ass kid. And I was like, why the hell am I doing this? What, what are we doing here? We're driving in the car. We're going to Sunday school. I don't believe in this garbage anyways. What, what, what what's going on? And he was like, we do it because that's what you do. <laughs> you go to Sunday school because because that's what your mother wants you to do and that's what you're doing and you're a Jew and you're gonna have a bar mitzvah and that's with, the with way his it. like Brooklyn accent yeah and, and I'm like uh, okay but like I guess I was into nuance at the time as well because I might have been like what's the point of what we're doing and he was like I can't answer that question so I'm just gonna tell him that's what we do uh, and and that's what we did but uh, and that that's where you know we were, we were talking before the show and, and I think. Um, We'll get into this now, but this is, I think, where you're coming from. This is kind of like what what I'm writing about in in this book that I keep talking about. That's going to come out one day. Um, that that what this is where where is the generational shift? Because I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right in that it it's it's crosses multiple generations that not everybody knows what their Jewish connection or their Jewish formula, let's call it, is supposed to be. But in previous generations, you had two things that don't exist today. And and by previous generations, I'm talking about, you know, like baby boomers and before. And mm-hmm. that one is that there were so many threats to the Jewish people. You know, you had the Holocaust, you had anti-Semitism pogroms, the founding of Israel. Um, you had a time, like even in, in you know, my when my dad was, was a kid where Jews couldn't join the country club, right? So you couldn't really fully be a part of society and be a Jew. And so you kind of had all these negative factors from the outside forcing you to be a Jew. So it's like, it's what you do because you're a Jew, but, but we're not there anymore. We're, we're in a place, um, I mean, we live in Israel, we kind of are there, but but we're, we're in this place, you're in this place where, where Jews, whether they want to be Jews or whether they just want to be generic Americans and you know, no disrespect to generic Americans, you can do that now. There, there's you can you can make being I don't know a progressive political activist, your religion, environmentalist, uh, a yoga practitioner, anything can be your religion these days. And, and so you have to now answer that question: Why be Jewish, right? And because is, is no longer an answer. Yeah, I think it's uh, partly the lack of push factors, uh, you know, like anti-Semitism yeah. that. Uh, you know, like you say, now you have a choice. Um, And I think there's also a sense of, um, and maybe it comes from the same places, but there was a sense of obligation that doesn't exist in the same way anymore. And um, why why is that? Well, I I mean, I I think just because it's like generationally dissipated and and it probably does have a lot to do with the push factors. a lot of times I give the analogy that that it's like Judaism kind of works on the business model of a gym, uh, where the whole idea is that 
um, that people pay the monthly fee, but they don't actually go to the gym. And the whole business model depends on people not going to the gym, because if they actually went to the gym, there wouldn't be enough mm-hmm. machines to handle them. And so, but not the whole, a, that whole business gym. model only works if there's people who are willing to pay, even though they're not participating. And why does that, why does somebody pay for something that they're not participating? Either it's because they have some hope that like, I, I want to participate. I mean to participate, you know, right. Uh, I should be participating. And so I'm willing to kind of pay for it so that I will have the option. If I happen to wake up tomorrow morning and I wanted to go to the gym, I know I could go. Right. Or there's just some sense like it's a good thing for gyms to exist. It's, a, you know, I'm doing my yeah, part. Right. Or, you or, know, my kids, or, right. or it makes them feel like their life is more in order. I'm yeah. a member of a synagogue. Yeah. I can right. tell people and, honestly that I belong to, you know. Temple Shmata. Well, there was a time in American life where you had to belong to a religious community. Right. You had to belong to a church. Uh, you had to belong to a denomination and and the community. Um, Judaism was considered kind of a denomination in that sense, like just another one of the American denominations. And you couldn't fully participate in communal life. And think about politicians. Can you imagine a politician, not now, but in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, who didn't belong to a church even if he didn't believe a word of what was happening I there no exactly you don't need that anymore although i i still think that the look well, maybe if you're, you're a republican a national, but if you're a democrat i don't think you need no that i anymore, think you right? do need it i think if you're talking national level politics it would be deeply dis uh, i'm just saying but this is this is like the, the change like, you know? for sure yeah i'm the, not sure because i i'm not sure for example that i mean kamala harris for example doesn't doesn't seem to be uh spe- you know particularly religious. I mean, she may be, and she, she may, yeah, I just may not be aware, know. but I mean, I think that, I think that, I think that you're right. Um, but I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, what I want to point out though, is that when we think about like the good old days, right. I, I'm not sure that it's good old days. It doesn't feel like good old days to me that there was this time where people were willing to pay the synagogue dues, but they never wanted to go to synagogue. Like that doesn't feel like a good Judaism to me. That no. feels like a Judaism that's surviving yeah. because of their willingness to do that. But it doesn't. But why should it survive? Like, what's good about it? Mm-hmm. And it, if it was so good, then why wouldn't people want to participate? Right. So, so I think that that you know, instead of looking back and saying there was a there was a great time and something has been lost, I actually think that it's good that that has been lost. Because that puts the pressure on Judaism to make the case for itself, and if it can't make the case for itself, then why why should it really continue? You know that that's the question, and um, you know, and 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 people can answer that question. I mean, I'm not saying that there's bad that all the answers to that question are bad, but I'm saying that at least we should be honest about how we're answering that question. Uh, and you know, for I think for for people if they want to say, well, the reason is because we. You know, we've been around for so long. We don't want to be the last. You know, I'm like, why? That doesn't move me. What would what moves me is like this makes my life better. Yeah. This is going to help me make the world a better place. And and I think that if we look really seriously at Judaism, I think we we might uh, be right to say it, it's been falling down on the job, or it certainly hasn't been making. Fell, fell it's, it's, been it ve- it's been very. Um, how should we say this? It's been very oriented towards looking back in, 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 in many of the ways that it's been, you know, if we're talking about, what do you call it? A push, uh, push and pull factors? Yeah, the push and pull factors of like guilting people as to this is what was done in the past, so we need to continue it because there's a tradition mm-hmm. and, you know, you must do this because uh, the Jewish people were 
you know, have this threat or the other. Um, oh, for, it, by the way, for, for me, that works. It works for many people. For, for me, you know, to say, you know, my cousins suffered in the Holocaust, so, you know, and couldn't do this, I'm going to do this for their memory. Like, that for me, personally... But you're That's not, a thing. But but you are not, uh, and here we'll get into like, if we're talking about cultural or societal traits of, of younger generations of people, and particularly millennials and, and whatever the one is that comes after, I think it's Gen Z or something like that. Why? Gen Y. Um, I mean, these you're talking about people without making gross generalizations. I'll make gross, a make, gross, make, a, a make gross the grossest generalization. generalization you they're, can. they're looking, you know, they're looking forward. They're looking at... You know how is something relevant to me? It's well, very, that, that's what Dan's saying, what, yeah, and that's what Dan's saying, and 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 that's what's what's particularly poignant about the message is that it has to look future oriented. It can't be it can't be oriented towards the glory or the or the uh, uh, the destruction or, or something yeah. that happened in the past. I, I will point out two things. First, first, when I made Aliyah, um, a lot of that pressure came off me because mm-hmm. I said, you know what, like okay, and I think you see this with a lot of people who become less observant of tradition even you right when you made you made aliyah you you were a lot more observant yeah in the state it, it takes it off because it, it, it takes it away in that because you're like i'm part of the jewish story now Zion, i don't Zion, need to like because a part of the traditions a, you know outside right or, or to say it in a different way zionism could be interpreted as the jewish future or, or well, the, that's what and that's what, wanted and, and that's what we would feel yeah. like we were doing if we were here so in that in that case it's like i've done mine i right? I, I, I will point out something else though and that's I, I think what you're talking about in that you have to find a meaning in a story is we're, we're talking about non-orthodox jews here because i mean yes orthodox all, many Orthodox do look for meaning or at least come to or people who become Orthodox look for meaning and that's why they get to Orthodoxy. I so. uh, no, I did. But um, but there's that thing holding you in place in, in that you have to do it. Like that's that's part of being Orthodox is, is no, the Torah says you have to do it. You have to do it whether you're into it right now or not. You know, I, like I don't decide to not keep Shabbat. I started keeping Shabbat in college, right? I grew right. up. I grew up in a reform house. I started keeping Shabbat and, and kosher and and doing doing more in college. I can't say, man, I don't feel like keeping Shabbat this week. Like I don't do it. Like that's just something I do now. But um, so so I think we kind of got to put that aside. And now you're talking about basically the rest of the Jews. And now, yeah, can- I, I think that's right. I mean, the one thing that I would say to about what you said earlier, Dan, is that. Um, I don't have a problem at all. I mean, I'm not judging. You know, I don't have a problem with people who say, um, I actually am inspired by that idea that my family died in the Holocaust, so I want to make sure to not, you know, to not drop these things. I just want to point out that there are not enough people who think that way to sustain the number of institutions that we have. And the way that those institutions have been sustained operating on basically a mission that sounds something like that is that that people have been willing to pay for those institutions, even though they are not actually moved by that mission right. or not moved in the same way. And that's what's ending. And so I think that if we just have fewer of those institutions, that would be fine. Like I, I want people like you to have a really rich Jewish experience. I just think we can't have as many uh, as we have now because they're being sort of cross subsidized by the people like me who, who are, going, who are yeah. not gonna pay for that anymore. You know, So that's number one. And then on the Orthodox thing, I would just point out that Orthodox Judaism 
for the most part. I mean, Chabad is sort of an exception. Some of the ultra-Orthodox are an exception. Right. But right. Uh, but basically operates on, a, on an entirely different business model, right? Because in the Orthodox business model, and I hope that that's just an analogy, you know, that's just uh, part, <laughs> partly, I don't want to offend people with the language, offend, but offend the, the business <laughs> model of Orthodoxy is exactly what I'm talking about, that yeah, everybody in. who's paying does participate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is a good business model. That is a that is an admirable business model in my opinion. Now, some of the some elements of orthodoxy are problematic because for example, ultra orthodoxy often makes it hard to leave and that's right. that's a negative if people really aren't free to leave if they want to, but that's another story. Can I ask, it, it can works I, on the business level. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, it it seems like what what we're getting at is that there's this there's this business called Judaism and you have to have something that gives you the pull to be a part of it. So in the case of orthodoxy and, and practitioners of orthodox Judaism, it's more of a duty bound. Uh, you know, there's a belief yeah. in the Torah. I have to, I'm, I'm bound to Hashem. I have the duty to do these things and, and, and meaning is it's important, but, but it, you know, I'm also part of a, a, a klal. I'm, I'm part of a, 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 a group, a collective, and I have to do these things. And in, in the past, uh, for American Jews, it was often a duty bound to the past and, and to commemorate the past and to commemorate the community or the, or the cohesion that the community was going through because of external forces upon it. And, 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 in, and in Europe in the past, if we're talking about pre-enlightenment, we're talking about people that also were probably well, duty you didn't bound, have a choice. But, but you didn't have a choice. Yeah. And, and now we're faced with this thing where it's like you have to have a choice. And, and, and I think that, and, and there's a question here, which is that at some point in time, I think for a a multitude of non-Orthodox Jews in the States, and I'd like to have your opinion on this, it seemed like progressive politics took that, it became the duty in many ways, that it was less, um, how should I say this without putting my foot in my mouth, it, it, it became... Yeah, you take your shoe off first. No, it seems, it seems sometimes that it's like... It, 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 yeah, no. I, it, it seems like we're trying to, and I and I see this with a lot of with a lot of uh, you know synagogues that might come to Israel. I see it in the programming that I have to you know uh, uh, find and, and discover. It, it seems like there's a particular politics that has, in many cases, in a secular world, become like a religion in its adherence to it. So, if we're not dismantling the organization, the organizations of Judaism, we have to adapt them to fit its narratives in many ways, uh, and. And, and, and sometimes I see that the agendas in, in synagogues are becoming less about Judaism as, as they are more towards how is Judaism fitting into the mold of American progressive politics. Um, and, and that is an unorganized thought if I've ever had one. But uh, <laughs> well, but you're there. So who am I to, to, to comment on it? I'd like to hear your. your well, I, I mean, I would frame it a, a slightly different way and then see if this brings us to a different place, which sure. is that. I think that people are attracted, people who are attracted to progressive politics are attracted to progressive politics because it activates their moral sense of what's good and what's what's right, what's good for them or what kind of life they want to live. Like I like to me, I mean, I could speak at least for, for a progressive of one uh, yes. that I feel like. My politics is not a fad. It's not. It's not because it makes me look cool. It's because I really feel that. For example, I, I often tell this story that my dad was very active in the '60s in the civil rights movement, and he would tell this story about my grandmother saying to him, "You know, our family was killed in the Holocaust 20 years ago. 
shouldn't you be spending your time building up the Jewish community? Why are you going down to Mississippi to register African-Americans to vote? And he said to her, you know, Ima, if you don't understand that I'm going to Mississippi because our family was killed in the Holocaust, mm. you know, then I, I'm not really sure how to explain it, you know, and that that my understanding, you know, so so and it's not because our family was killed in the Holocaust only. It's because America took us in, you know. And so, in other words, if if I I want that America, that America that took us in when we were when we were um, in a bad way. And America didn't, and when we complain about America, didn't take in enough Jews at that during yeah. the Holocaust. If we if we want to be serious about that, but th that's not just saying that America should take in more Jews. That's saying that what makes that what makes America America in our ideal is that it takes in people who need it. Or, yeah. And so what that means is that when my people are doing okay, that I have to shift my moral sensibility to make sure that we America the America that I'm now sort of in central in is giving to these other people what it gave to my family. And and that for me, like that, I, I get goosebumps about that story. I'm not yeah. like that, you know, another, so, so now when I, when I say, um, okay, so like progressive, progressive um, politics, that we call it, or, you know, progressivism, that's my religion. Like, I mean, it really is right. Yeah. Like I, I have a, I have a founding story. I have a, I have a set of values that drives it. And, and then when I look at, if I look at Judaism and I say, you know, this is, this is at odds with it. I mean, this is, this is trying to turn people parochial and saying, just let's worry about our own. Then to me, in a way, it sort of misunderstands the whole story of the Jews in America, as I understand it. Well, I'm going to choose the progressive version of that because it feels more true to me, you know? And so, so what are you what are you supposed to do if you're a rabbi? You know, I think you you can try to harmonize the two and maybe that's what it ends up yeah. feeling like. I'm not sure that that's wrong. You know, and I'm not sure that that should be seen as just like riding along with like the political winds. I think it's actually trying to um, build a Judaism that um, kind of makes sense to to the, its potential adherence. And um, and. You know, I, I think that's only wrong if you think that Judaism can't sort of tolerate, can't hold that that politics. But I, I think that it can. I, I, I think. Well, I, let me let me ask you a follow up here, um, if if you don't mind. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose my my point. Because go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Now, what, what I was just going to say was that it seems that there the, at times that it if you're looking at the content of of the Jewish experience in that framework, that there's something of the actual story of Judaism. Uh, in terms of the, you know the classical story of Judaism or the books of Judaism or the literacy in Jewish culture that can be lost because it, it it seems to you know we live we live in the present so the issues of the present are always much more uh, urgent than the than 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 you know things that happened in the past or or esoteric conversation about the origin story of whatever so it it to me, and I live in a Jewish country, so I'm looking. I'm looking from afar in a completely, you know, it's ensconced in in, in Jewish stuff at uh, at the you know the former uh, you know my former country, and it's and it's it's like I, I I hope that there's a some sort of a, and I'm saying this as a secular Jew. I hope that there is uh, emphasis also being given by rabbis uh, and Jewish community leaders to also create literate Jews. And, and if that means literate progressive Jews, terrific. Then they should be literate progressive Jews. They should understand the, the, the Jewish context of their identity as well and not only yeah. 
come together and say we're we're a group of ethnic Jews that are also progressive, but we're you know progressivism is our religion. Uh, well, I think I think so, because happened, at that, in that case, why is the synagogue even existing? Why have the synagogue? I, I think that happened for a while. I think you know if you study the history of American Judaism, which you know especially the American Reform Judaism, it was originally um, an attempt. I, I, again, I say this. It was it was kind of like Protestant Judaism, and I'm not saying this is a criticism. Saying this is an observation of original original Reform Judaism from the 1800s and the early 1900s. Even when you and I grew up, I think Dan, you're a little bit older than us. Um, when I grew up, the, the Jewish factor, certainly the Jewish text factor, if you're talking about Torah, I, I didn't know anything of Gemara when I grew up, and I went to Sunday school every week, and we went to shul a couple times a month. You know, we were very active. In our form community, it was very light on Judaism as we know it today. What I'm noticing uh, in my in my research, first of all, a lot of um, a lot of what you would call progressive or liberal Jewish communities are making a return to Jewish text. And, and I think what's interesting to me is the kind of projects and the kind of world that that you seem to be involved in, Dan. Um, through your podcast or through this this kind of ecosystem of innovative and very progressive Jewish communities, is that I think you're you're what what you're saying, Benny, is something that used to exist, and that it would be Jews getting together doing politically progressive things because that's their impetus, that's their moral impetus. And again, I'm not saying this as a criticism. Today, I'm looking at places like I don't know Noah Kushner at Kitchen or Amichai Lau. In, in Labshul and, and um, you know, in your neck of the woods, Mishkan, uh, and I'm seeing places that are very deeply connecting it to Jewish text or B'nai, you know, the kind of things that B'nai is doing that, that you have the show with her. Um, really, really deeply connecting to Jewish text in a way that I don't think existed for people who weren't Orthodox, maybe conservadox 30 years ago, and now it exists. And now people are taking those very progressive inclinations and combining it with very deep Judaism. And this is like one of the really new and exciting things that I'm watching. And I'm watching it from the side because I'm not an especially progressive person. Um, but I'm watching it from the side. And I'm saying this is absolutely fascinating. This is something that didn't exist when we were kids in America. The question that I always ask you <coughs> and I'll ask Dan is how much is that what we would say in Hebrew, you know, the, the tip of the spear? And how much is how much does that it's have the potential to be to become normative? In, mm-hmm. in the younger generation of Jews as we go into the next 20, 30, 40 years? It's a great, great question. I mean, I, I, I just want to say one thing about, you know, Jewish texts. I, I love Jewish texts and I'm a text guy, but I want to be careful not to overprivilege Jewish text. Mm-hmm. Benet and I have been talking a lot about lately the, the idea of the oral Torah, you know, and there's this tradition, right, that the, that the rabbis you know, make up, but that that there was two Torahs given at Mount Sinai, the written Torah and the oral Torah. And lately I've been thinking like, actually, no, 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 there was only one Torah given at Sinai. It was only the oral Torah. And the and the quest and over time, parts of it have been written down some earlier rather than later. And so the things that have been written down earlier aren't necessarily more important than the things that got written down later. And so I think that when we say, when we have Jews, you know, like my father who says, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like it's a Jewish pilgrimage, a Jewish holy obligation to go and register African-Americans to vote because our family was killed in the Holocaust. Like, how is that different 
from saying that we have such and such halachot because the second temple was destroyed, or we observe Tisha B'Av because the second temple was sure. destroyed. Like Judaism is based on history as much as it's based on text. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that we should take seriously our more recent history as as just as strong of a Jewish basis for doing something, I think is actually very, very traditional. So I, I, yeah. I don't want to like just no, say that, no, it, that if Sharon Browse like cites a Jewish text, it's the only legitimate citation for a social justice work by her congregation. You know, so so that's just a, a piece of that. The other piece that I talk a lot about in terms of like thinking about how this change would happen uh, that I think really connects to a traditional Jewish idea, which is the she'erit, the remnant. And right, I think we have this idea that Judaism is periodically rebuilt by a remnant of the past. Is this and the tip of the spear that Betty was referring to? Yeah, the, the tip of the spear. So so in a way, like I think that especially in the Jewish funding world, there's this implicit understanding that if this is all going to work, then the way this is going to work is we're going to somehow stop quote, assimilation, Mm -hmm. and we're going to hold on to all the Jews, and they're going to stop drifting away. (laughs) We're going to hold on to all of them. And then hopefully we'll somehow add a few. Well, I mean, okay, like, first of all, I don't think that's really going to work. And second of all, so 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 that means Judaism is more or less like stuck at, you know, 14 million for the rest of history, while the rest of the world's population is exploding. Like, I don't know, it doesn't sound so exciting to me. Whereas there's another uh, philosophy of you know, how change happens called disruptive innovation or nonlinear innovation. And the idea there is that you basically, the way that paradigm shifts happen is that a a new version is kind of seeded in the world of those who are not participating in the current version. And you could, and, and, and the, the reason why those paradigm shifts tend to come from a startup is because the existing players in the industry say like, but that's a crappy version. That's no yeah. good. Like we, our people would never want that. So they kind of and let they it, don't. They, they don't pay any attention to yeah. it. And then it kind of tends to get better and better and better over time. And it's actually meeting the needs of people that are out there, which the old thing wasn't. wasn't and they're getting really right. excited about it. And there's energy there and there's explosive growth there. And it, and it's like, you know, those um, thought experiments when you have like a, 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 a uh, a lily pad in a in a pond and it doubles every day and like until like the the 29th day it's still just covering a little and then like the the next two days it's like explodes and it covers the whole pond you know there's this like when you think about logarithmic growth it starts at a, at something that looks like not growth and then it shoots up and right. so that's what happens in this kind of innovation so i i would want us again to reframe and imagine a different jewish world where everybody who's involved in jewish life now they're not going to be involved in the Jewish life of the future. Let's imagine imagine that there's going to be a new Judaism seated among the people who are not very involved in Judaism today. That's going to learn a lot from the Judaism that we have. It's going to I think of it sometimes as like a building that fell down and somebody comes and rescues all the bricks and brings them over here and builds a new building out of it which is even better than the old building, using the same bricks. Yeah. They're just in a little bit of a different order. But the fact that they were built in this new land is really important because this new land has, you know, is more stable. That yeah. old place had earthquakes, you know. That's so, fascinating. And, and that's exactly so, so that's the thesis. That's the thesis that I come to in the book. And, and I'm certainly influenced by you and by our conversations because you were one of the first people I talked to. And that, that's exactly kind of the conclusion that I'm coming to about what I think is happening in American Judaism. And I have the disadvantage and advantage of being a distant observer you know i'm and on the one hand i'm deeply connected to american jewry on the other hand i live over here and i only visit every year or so um but that that's exactly the the thesis that i point out with what's happening and it's a disruptive 
innovation. You know, we had, um, I don't know if you've listened to previous episodes, um, but this comes up at least once an episode. I'm really into CrossFit <laughs> and Benny started, right. Benny started a couple months ago, but it's kind of like you were talking about, you know, gym memberships and, and how they're built on that model. And we had a CrossFit episode a couple of weeks ago and the entire CrossFit model is ex- exactly like orthodoxy. It's like everyone has to be showing up. Otherwise it doesn't work. If you just have people paying, you know, and not showing up, it, that's not a thing, but it's a vastly like they call different, you if you're not coming. They do, but it's a vastly yeah. different model. It's a very disruptive model to the fitness culture. And, and I think you, you make a really good point that that's worth remembering. And we've had this at every stage in Jewish history. It's not that everyone shifts into whatever Judaism has become over the years. And, and you know, I don't know how many transformations Judaism has had. That's either. why they call it orthodoxy in a way. What right? do you mean? What's the English, what's the translate what's the definition of orthodoxy? Of, um, to adhere to to adhere to okay. yeah, it's not it's not open to to these sorts of transformative changes. The people. Well, that, what that, I meant by the, orthodox, I meant like maybe I didn't mean orthodox, but I meant like the strict adherers mm-hmm. uh, in that sense. But how many times have we had these disruptions in Judaism? Usually from the outside and not from the inside, right? Usually it's not like oh everything's good, we're just going to get bored and drift away. Okay, we need to reinvent Judaism, which is kind of what's happening now in the American sense. Um, but it was, you know, the destruction of the temple and, you know, uh, Babylon. By the way, in Egypt, you know, we say when the diaspora from Egypt, even according to, to biblical sources, um, only, what was it, like 10% of the, of the Jews actually left? Or, or maybe I'm making up my numbers. But uh, You mean in the, in the, to, when to leave Egypt? Yeah. In, in, the, in the Torah? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I've, Although I, I've been citing this everywhere. My sister at Pesach had this amazing idea of the anti-lammers. You know, they were the people who thought that the 10th plague was a hoax and they didn't <laughs> want to put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. And, uh, and, and, and that actually helped me understand the wicked son, the wicked son in the, in the Haggadah, you know, the one who, you know, who took himself out of the community and he wouldn't have been redeemed. It's not a punishment. It's just a description. Like he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have made it. Like, okay, he didn't this is. But this is literally how this happens, right? Brilliant. Somebody in about 500 years is going to be looking back at this period of our history. Yeah. That this thing happened. There was this plague called COVID. And right. there were the anti-vaxxers. And they, it's like... That's, that's brilliant. <laughs> but yeah, like with, with every period in history, it wasn't just like everyone went along with a new thing. There was like a, a, a garin, a seed, a core of people who went on to the new thing. And everyone else disappeared, yeah. drifted off, assimilated, whatever, you know. Yeah. And, and well, and the, here's the thing. I mean, we, we sort of know that, I mean, some of the history is a little bit unclear, but when you think about the late Second Temple period, the rabbis, the people we call the rabbis, they came from the sect at the time called the Pharisees. Right. Pharisees in Hebrew is prushim, prushim. which basically means dissidents, right? People, I mean, they were the, out, split off. the people on the outs. Yeah. Yeah. So their name meant the people on the outs, right? Yeah. The people who put themselves out or were put out, whereas the, the people who were on the ins, the Tzadokim, right, the Sadducees, the Tzadok was the name the of priest. the main priestly right. family. So they were the really inside people. And the Zealots, the Kanaim, the Zealots, like they're the people who are really into it, right? right. So the people who are really into it and the people who whose name <laughs> means the center of everything, they're the ones who kind of don't make it. And the people whose name means the dissidents, they're the ones who become definitional of the next version of Judaism. And that's how it always happens. Right. You know, that's how it always has happened. That's how it will happen. So that's where I think the thought experiment that says, what would it look like to start with the uninvolved people 
is really helpful. And by the way, I would just say about, about secular Zionism that I think we arguably that's also the story of secular Zionism, at least in the beginning, that it was really the people who are not in the center of things in, in Western Europe. And it was the more, it, this wasn't really what Herzl wanted, but it, it was really the poor Russians who were kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, those sort of uh, lower class, you know, kind of people that Herzl didn't love them, but they were the ones who sort of ended up having the energy to, to uh, take that vision and, and drive it into, uh, you know, into, into real settlement and the real process. So when you talk about this next version of Judaism and, and I'd love to hear how, um, I mean, your podcast is kind of a part of this project. I should mention your podcast and our podcast, just to give a shout out, we are both, um, thank you to, um, we're featured in the top 60 Jewish podcast episode uh, that you must follow in 2021. So both Judaism and Unbound and Juanced feature on this. It is blog.feedspot.com, top 60 Jewish podcasts you must follow in 2021. Thank you for including us both on, on this uh, list. Um, just wanted to mention that. Shout out to, to that uh, list. When... Are you advocating for this? Are you imagining this? Are you, what does this mean? What is this whole process of the next Jewish future? I mean, I'm advocating it in the sense that I don't think that the other way is going to work. And so if if something is going to work, I think it's it's got to come from embracing a process like this. I also personally would probably be happier with the result of this process. Although I'm actually very conscious of the ways in which a lot of the things that I have a lot of admiration for that are happening these days, like they either sort of definitionally exclude me, for example, because they're they're in the LGBT world and I'm straight, you know, or they're in there, like I really think highly of this Kohenet world. It's this world of like, priestesses, you know, Jewish Have priestesses, this, very feminist, very... No, I haven't heard. What, what is the Kohenet world? Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure that I can tell you so many. There's, we did an episode, you can listen. Like, I'm not, I don't want to, like, sort of um, do a bad job of describing it. But but again, they really, like, trace their... It's, it's like a very feminist, uh, women-oriented uh, space. It's saying we don't want... It's not just about women to be rabbis. I mean, some of them are rabbis, so they're not against it. But they're saying, no, no, we want to recapture an idea of women's leadership from the past and that there actually were kohanot in the past not that we're talking further back from the from the past of the torah but before that you know there were these there were there was you know the divine feminine and and there were and this is part of the, the it's also part of our tradition in the sense that you know a lot of times a lot of people will say this and and i i agree when you read in the bible that the some somebody is condemning the worship of the asherah for example which is a kind of a divine feminine symbol mm -hmm. well that means a lot of people were worshiping the asherah because otherwise why would they have wasted time telling people to stop doing that yeah, right and so that means that that's part of our tradition now it's not the part of our tradition that the elites in power approved of but hey i'm not an elite in power so it's actually probably more like the people like me were the ones worshiping the asherah so why should i be going along with what the elites in power wanted instead of sort of uh, recognizing that there's this counter tradition that's been suppressed so you know it's it's sort of part of that world but you know it's very like in practice a lot of this stuff is kind of very um you know, what you could call sort of like touchy-feely, you know, spiritual. 
And I'm a very like intellectual, you know, book reading kind of person. So if it turns out that the Judaism of the future is dominated by, you know, Kohanot and the LGBT world, I'm not sure at the end of the day that it's going to be like where I feel like super, I'm most, you know, uh, religiously comfortable, but I would be very excited about it because it, it would be breathing new life into Judaism. And that's okay that, that maybe at the end of the day, it's not um, what I would design if I were the designer, because it probably, and this is kind of what I was trying to say to Dan earlier, like if I was designing a Judaism that would work the best for me, it probably wouldn't work that well for so many people because I'm very conscious of how I'm, I'm an oddball. You know, so um, it, it, it makes me think it's it's like, how awesome would it be if you had a time machine and you could go, go back to the time of that and see right. what it was really like? Oh, I think what, what were people going on? Yeah. And, and then look at the entire course of history up until now and say, wow, we were we were worshiping in ways that were totally off base from what they had set out to do. And do you think that, and to kind of extrapolate this onto, onto the point of going towards the future, do you think that that Jewish future will, if they had a time machine, come back to us and find that they were doing what we had set them off to do? Or do you think it will look so dramatically different from what we can understand today that it would be as far removed from, from, uh, from reality as we might be from our distant ancestors? You know, there's this wonderful story in the Talmud that's about this, where where basically um, Moses is on Mount Sinai, and um, and and uh, he he. It's interesting. He's saying to God, like, why are you taking so long, like decorating the letters of the Torah? You know, putting on the crowns. And uh, and God says to Moses, it's because in like a thousand years from now, or more than a thousand years, there's going to be this guy named Rabbi Akiva. You know, Kiva ben Yosef, and he's going to be interpreting the crowns of the letters to have meanings of laws and stuff. So I'm like putting them there for him to kind of discover. And 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 uh, Moses is like, oh, this is interesting. Like, show him to me. So basically, God puts him into a time machine. I mean, he says, turn around right. and he's there. But, you know, he, he kind of goes in the time machine and he's sitting in the back row of Rabbi Akiva's yeshiva. And the Talmud says that he didn't understand a single word that Rabbi Akiva was saying. And he he uh, became it's the Hebrew is halash um, nafsho uh, I think it's but it's basically like he became depressed or he became like discouraged and um, but then one of the students raises his hand and he says like Rabbi Akiva like where do you get this law from that you just told us and he says Torah Torah Sinai like it was it was given to Moses at Sinai and and then it, the Talmud says and, and Moses was cheered. You know, he still didn't understand anything, but he story. understood that there was still story. this connection. That's how I interpret it. Yeah. There was still this connection to, you know, and, and so probably the answer is that they would not recognize it at all, uh, but they would hopefully kind of, we would still have this story where we, where we connect it all. And by the way, like, I think that that's one of Judaism's like geniuses is that sometimes it can be dysfunctional, but when it's functional is when we have these disruptive changes it tends to be that somebody comes along later and tells a story that ties them all together. So the idea that the oral Talmud was given at, at Sinai, for example, is a brilliant way to say, hey, we have these two completely different kinds of Judaism here, rabbinic and biblical. Yeah, how do we but tie actually, them together? <laughs> there's a direct line they were both given at Sinai. Yeah. So I think that if we have this new version of Judaism in the future, probably the definitional thing about whether it really will be Judaism or not. And by the way, you can say this about why Christianity is not Judaism is, is because like 
that story wasn't told that way. You know, the Christians didn't, the Christians told the story of continuity, but it was a different story of continuity. Whereas the Jews, meaning the rabbinic Jews, whose Judaism is quite different. I mean, is it, you know, can we really say that rabbinic Judaism is more similar to biblical Judaism than Christianity is to biblical Judaism? It's not quite clear. The, The real difference is that the rabbinic Jews told the story of this kind of line of connection, whereas the Christians, because they wanted to include all these other peoples, told a different story of, of connection. And so, you know, I, I kind of imagine that those future Jews will will tell that story that they're connected to us. And that's really going to be the definition of why they are connected to us. I, I want to ask you something here. Um, but before I do, you know, Benny, you mentioned earlier, you kind of brought up this whole thing about, you know, we talked about progressivism and Judaism, and, and you can take it in a conservative direction, too. I mean, and, and it's kind of what you're saying. It can be interpreted for whatever we want. It's vague enough. So if you want to pull progressive politics um, out of Torah and out of Jewish text, you can do it. You know, uh, um, help the downtrodden, help the orphan and the widow, and and you were once strangers. And that's a very American kind of progressive Jewish message. Or if you want to pull the tribalistic, you know, God gave us this mission and, and et cetera, you can pull that out of it. So it, it's really wherever you want to take it, um, you can, and it's there. Sure, it's, it's there to do that. And I don't think, you know, this is kind of an argument I often have with much more conservative friends here in Israel, most of them who tend to be, you know, Orthodox. And, and it's like that Judaism, I don't think is any less authentic than what they're doing you know maybe i personally don't always go with it but it's, it's not any less authentic it's you know that's jewish and that's jewish and you can you can pull it for whatever you want um are they willing to hear that no <laughs> <laughs> no i saw i saw in the news um so i don't know if you if you, i don't know how i assume you follow israel news but i don't know um on number four on the labor list uh is rabbi gilad kariv um, nice guy, very nice guy, very sharp guy. Um, former, formerly up until about a month ago, the head of the Israeli Reform Jewish Movement. Um, and, and I have a very good relationship with him from when I wrote the book on Reform and Conservative Judaism in Israel, and we've kept in touch. And and you know, this is it's a great achievement for him personally and for 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 pluralistic Judaism in Israel. Um, they showed something on the news where he met with a leading Haredi thinker slash academic, um, I want to say Moshe Halbertal. Um, Halbertal, I think it's Moshe. But he's he's he's, yeah. a, he's considered a Haredi intellectual here. Oh, he's not Haredi. Maybe it's somebody else. Anyway. This, this person was definitely Haredi, whoever he met mm-hmm. with. Um, and they met for a conversation. And at least the clips they showed on the news, the Haredi world cannot accept... Um, liberal interpretations of Judaism, like 100% can't accept them as, as you know, it's worse than, it's worse than Christianity. It's worse it's than secularism. It, it's, it's, um, it's a Shanda. Yeah. Um, but no, they, they, they can't, they definitely can't accept that. Um, I, I mean, the thing, the thing for me as trained as a biologist is, uh, you know, in my previous life is that there, <laughs> what there aren't you? Are you a culinary? What? Are you also at Culinary Institute of America trained chef? No, but I mean, yeah, I did take biology. I majored in biology because I was going to medical school. But like there's this idea of the founder's (laughs) effect, right? Which is that a lot of times like an animal population, when you look at evolution, you'll say, well, why why did it evolve this way? And sometimes there's a explanation, but sometimes it's just because the bird that happened to float along to this island happened to have that that quality. Yeah. And 
Um, so I, I think that when you when you look at these moments of Jewish transition, sometimes the question is like, which group made it? And, mm. which, you know, which founders effect therefore took hold? So if you think about like the the Pharisees or the rabbis, you know, versus the, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls people, they, they were very different. Is the reason why the rabbis made it and the Dead Sea Scrolls didn't, is that because their version of Judaism was more accurate or authentic than the other? Or is it just because the Dead Sea Scroll people seem to not have, uh, they had one of those traditions, it seems like, where they didn't actually have sex, you know, so yeah, they didn't celibacy, have any babies. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the reason, you know, but, so um, but I think that when we look at like ultra-Orthodox Judaism, I mean, like, you know, famously the Chatam Sofer, the founder of ultra-Orthodox Judaism says, Kol Chadash Asur Mea Torah, like everything new is forbidden by the Torah. Well, that itself was an innovation. The, the Torah doesn't say anything. And where it says that Hadash is is not allowed, that's actually Hadash is a kind of a grain. You know, it's like that. What it it's a, it's an agricultural idea that says that you're not supposed to eat Hadash. You're not supposed to eat the the newest uh, grain. You're supposed to like sacrifice that or or whatever. And so he's making a homiletic interpretation of this idea and. But it's actually an innovation, and his innovation is to say that all innovation is forbidden. So, <laughs> so you know, and so how is that more authentic than Reform Judaism, which says you know innovation is 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 our, is, yeah. is our tradition, and we're going to keep doing it? They're and both it, well, doesn't so, the they're problematic, but, and, and, and they're the, both true. And in the end of the day, they're both just the thoughts of human beings. Yeah, it, it's it it gets down to just the ultimate the ultimate argument, which is just like. Okay, you, so you say. Okay, so so you say, and so you say. Well, we're all humans. You decided that that's your interpretation. You decide. The other person decides that that's the way that he wants to go. This is at least the way that I see it. No, at the no, end the, of the day, that's an outsider view. The 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 reform will definitely say that because part of the reason that they allow themselves reform and later conservative allow themselves these interpretations is because they accept that they allow themselves these interpretations. The Torah can continue to update and change, and right, we have control of it. Loba shemaim he right. Um, which which is a, a shiur I'm gonna host uh, here at, at this house on Shavuot, um, but uh, the ultra orthodox today at least definitely don't see that they're they don't see that they see it as as they're literally taking God's word and doing exactly what they're supposed to do, uh, even though the Torah says lo tosif velotigra right you're not supposed right. to take away right. or add and they added they're adding chumrot they're adding more and more restrictions all the time so the, it is from the outside point of view you're right from the way they look at it there's an asymmetry there, right which explains well, I, was, I was looking at the outside point of view sure no absolutely and i do too um there was once a uh, ultra-orthodox guy that was you know, teaching courses at the university of chicago you know teaching classes and he came to hillel to ask me if he could teach the classes in the hillel building and I said to him, well, you know, tell me a little bit more about your organization. Like, what what are what kind of Judaism are you? And he says, uh, says, we're Torah from Sinai Judaism, you know, Torah from Sinai Judaism. And, and I said, like, what do you mean? Like, do you think that exactly the way you practice Judaism was given at Sinai? I mean, like, that people were wearing black coats and all that. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, no, 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 that's, that's true. It's, it's more like, it's the Judaism that our grandparents practice, you know, our great-grandparents. And I was like, well, my great grandparents were like peasants in a shtetl. Like they didn't, they didn't do that either. You know, and like yeah. so, I, I don't, I don't hold it against him. He's got a story that he's been taught that yeah. he believes, yeah. but it's yeah. not actually a true story in a in a kind of factual way. But neither is mine, right? And so the the point is that, like, I think Benny, like you were saying earlier, it's like the truth is out there. To quote, uh, you know, the, uh, <laughs> what, 
Pat, the, uh, David the Carpenter. Carpenter. <laughs> that, what's that, that show with the, X-Files, X-Files, yeah. X-Files, yeah, yeah, X-Files. So the truth is out there, but but we don't know what it is and we will never really know what it is. And so it's just sort of a question. I mean, and that ultimately too, I think is part of it too, is like, do we trust people to be motivated by good hearts, right? And to say like, I'm really doing this because I think it's the right thing. You know, and and I judge. I I generally take. I mean, that's a that's a big sort of piece of. I think my approach that's not really sort of intentional, but as I've been trying to understand it, it's kind of fundamentally optimistic about about people and their. Uh, you know, and if you if you kind of give people the sense that you're invited to be part of this process of figuring it all out, that they want to be invited and that they will do so responsibly. You mm-hmm. know, and and with a good heart. What What is your can you imagine what this Jewish future would look like? Um, or, or do you think we're too far from, because what I'm seeing now, I've, I've heard two, you know, again, in my research, I heard two points of view, including from people who are deep in it. And one point of view is that it's, it's a reimagining. I, I keep hearing the word reimagining. Okay. It's a word you hear rethinking, reimagining, reinventing, reapproaching. You talked about disruptive innovation. And yet some of the people I talk to again, who are a part of this world, um, say, you know what, it's just a better shul. Like, you go to mm-hmm. Ikar, and it's just a better shul. It's, it's a little more creative. It's a little more innovative. It's definitely more well-run. The theatrics are better. The, 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 the sermons are better. The music is better. But at the end of the day, it's just a better version of a synagogue. Why is it a zero-sum game? Why can't it be both? Well, if something... That, that's the whole point of disruptive innovation. If I take... Um, and, and I was talking to Benet about this, the, the original disruptive innovation theory talks about the founding of Target. Okay, right? I don't know if you know this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I write about this a little bit uh, because it comes from, a, I want to say, a Harvard uh, professor. I forget his name, but... Um, Clayton Christensen. Yes, and um, who came up with this theory of disruptive innovation in the business world is that you can't take something that more or less works that serves an existing population you're not if you're making an improvement that's not disruptive innovation, right? You're just making improvements to an existing thing, so you're not necessarily going to attract new people to to that. You're just making improvements. Okay, so you'll take the existing thing, let's say uh, a classic reformer conservative shul, and you're just making it a little better. Okay, you you fix it, you know, you make the you, you play with the formula. So, so you're you're saying, in, in, and what what a, a lot with some of the people, including if I'm understanding you correctly. And a lot of the people I interviewed and a lot of the people who are kind of, and this is, I don't know where I stand on this. I, I'm, I'm trying to write an entire book on this. I don't know where I stand on this. Some people say this is disruptive innovation and all of this new things that are happening in American Jewish life is disruptive. It's totally different. And to an extent, it is succeeding in gauging people who really didn't have a whole lot to do or anything to do with Jewish life before. People who were disengaged and disenfranchised from Jewish life. So so what is... Other people are saying, no, it's just a better shul, just okay, better so, run. So, so this is... A, okay, so you, you clarified for me, and I understand that, because what, what, what that person is saying is basically, these are new shuls, but they're still a shul. It's still a shul. It's, it's still, still shul. doing the same form. So I would turn to Dan and ask, right. well, what are those disruptive innovations that are changing the paradigm in American Judaism today? Right. So, so let me say a couple of things. Like, one, I... With with much like love and respect to most of those uh, organizations, like you're describing, like I more or less put them in the category of a new shul, which which I mean by which I mean a sustaining innovation. That's the opposite of disruptive. Right. Uh, that 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 it's it's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it's not a disruptive innovation. So and not, it doesn't have to be 
disruptive to be good, you know. So, but but I do want to make that distinction because because I agree. Like I think that if we're if we're looking at a disruptive innovation, then we probably have to be looking at something that would um, probably not be recognized, not be appreciated or even recognized by the people who kind of are participating in the in the way it is now. So. Um, you know, so look, I mean, I think that one way to think about it is like the the, the temple, uh, the second temple sure. involved like sacrificing animals. It also involved singing. The Levites were singing in the background. The the synagogue that emerged also involved singing. So it doesn't mean that like nothing can be nothing can be shared, but it means that the the central element of it is no is now gone. You know, or or, or vastly altered, and and something that either didn't exist or was peripheral is now central, you know? And so I often like try to imagine like, what if somebody were going into the second temple in like the year 60, you know, Hillel or, you know, I don't know, Yochanan ben Zakkai and trying to sell this idea for rabbinic Judaism, you know, they're like, well, we're going to have, you know, you know, those songs that the Levites sing while we're doing the sacrifices, like we're going to call those prayers now. That's all that's we're going to do. be the central <laughs> thing that we do, you know, and they're like, yeah. okay, and what time do the sacrifices happen? You know, and it's like, no, there's not going to no, be any sacrifices. No, 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 and no. they're going to, they're saying like, what are you talking about? No sacrifices. Like the sacrifices is the whole thing. Like well, that's, wait that's for what it. Judaism is. Wait for it. You're going to have in 2000 years, this thing called Yom Mot and Jews all over <laughs> the world are going to barbecue all day. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that, by the way, I think is actually, you know, I mean, if you think about what the original Pesach was, you know, it's just basically a big Independence Day barbecue. Yeah, you know, exactly. There is Independence Day and they would have a barbecue. Right? Have so, either of you um, been to um, Mount Gerizim to the Shomronim's Pesach sacrifice? I was, I was actually just invited uh, by a guide who takes groups there. I forget yeah. who I was talking you to. You have to go. And he's, he, was tr- he was seeing if there was interest in going to see the Shomronim. There's so much interest. It's so uh, I'm, I'm fascinated. You, you, next, next year, you try. You got to try to go. Do you know about this, Dan? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the Samaritans. Yeah, and they yes. still um, sort of. Uh, so, yeah, they 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 didn't uh, accept the rabbinic. Correct. Yeah. So so these would um, be people that that in your example they would go back and they would say except for this one little one little sect that'll still do the sacrifices. Yeah. Nobody's going to do yeah. it. So for our listeners that don't that don't know, I'm not an expert in this at all, except to know that if you go and I've been once and it was years and years and years ago. Uh, they still do the sacrifices, and it's they have it's an incredible experience because you can literally, probably in a very, 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 very minor form, witness what it might have what been it might like. have been looked like, yeah. Uh, and 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 then at the end, there's a lot of meat to be eaten. Uh, would that be kosher? I don't think it'd be kosher for for Jews who keep kosher. I'm not sure. I don't think it is. Um, I don't think it's probably not. But but by the way, like just to um. Uh, like not to get too much off on a tangent here, but I think it's interesting to think about. We have a guy uh, that we interviewed named Juan Mejia. He's an amazing rabbi who grew up in Colombia, the the country, Colombia, as a Catholic, but he discovered that he had Jewish roots, as most, I mean, I don't know most, a lot of people in Central America have been found to have Jewish ancestry from the Inquisition. And uh, he discovered this and he, long story short, like ends up converting formally to Judaism, becoming a conservative rabbi. And he started a Spanish language YouTube Jewish learning series aimed at people like him who were had Jewish roots in Central America, but needed Spanish language introductions to Judaism, which wasn't really available. And he would do like conversions of people like that and everything. And at a certain point, he started to get um, 
he started to get uh, inquiries from people who said, I don't have any Jewish roots, but I came across your Spanish language stuff and I'm really interested in Judaism and I'd also like to convert. And <laughs> after a while, he wasn't sure if he should be doing this, but after a while he decided, well, what's really the difference? How can I say no? And he started converting them too. Now, what he says is so interesting is that many of them, most of them want to become Orthodox because they see that as like the real Judaism. It's more authentic. So, yeah. so I can, but, and, and who are the Samaritans, the Shomronim? Arguably, I mean, there's different historical, you know, I'm not sure that they agree about this about themselves, but like that, that when the, the, there were population transfers after the first temple was destroyed and that the Samaritans are a group from somewhere else that got brought to the land of Israel and that kind of took on a lot of the, the Jewish, essentially they converted to Judaism and they wanted to become Orthodox. Yeah. So yeah. the people who kind of maintain the quote Orthodox, you know, t- temple tradition are people who actually started off not Jewish. Whereas the Jews, the people who started off Jewish, said they left that behind and they created a new kind of Judaism, which is rabbinic Judaism. And I can easily imagine that happening now, right? I look around and I say, look, look, Episcopalians and um, and even like um, even even certain uh, Christian evangelicals, like they really love reform, classical reform Judaism because it's sort of like all the it's very similar high music and all the wonderful yeah. stuff, but without Jesus, who they don't believe in, right? right. So. So it actually works very well for them. Whereas the Jews, many of the Jews who grew up in a classical reform, they don't want to have anything to do with it. it. Right. And so, so you can imagine like, so just, so just because you can imagine actually that, that um, if it wanted to more traditional Judaism could grow by being more open to conversion, which they tend to not be. And, you know, the guy who wrote um, the guy who wrote um, uh, startup nation. um, Dancing. Dan Center, uh, Dan, Dan Center, Center and the Paul other Singer, guy. Paul Singer. Uh, sing, Singer. Yeah. Uh, so he wrote a he wrote a piece Saul, like Saul probably Singer. like 20 Saul years Singer. ago where he talked about how um, how how in Jewish history there have been these periods either where Judaism was profoundly open, meaning you could easily leave and you could easily come in or profoundly closed. It was hard to get in and hard to get out. He said, we're living in this anomalous period where it's easy to get out, hard to get in. Yeah. But that actually is anomalous in Jewish history. And his major claim there was that we should become much more easy open to, to conversion because that's because you can't stop the outflow, but you can increase the inflow. Sure. And actually, Judaism is very attractive to many non-Jews. So why should they not be invited? So that that's a whole. Like, I've, kind I've of been I've been wrestling. Itself. I've been actually been wrestling with this a lot uh, over the past couple of years, and and I have this. It's this like article that I started writing, and I've I have the framework, and I just need to fill it in, and and I don't know who the hell will want to publish it, but it's it's we have a new challenge. We'll at, publish it on Jewance Facebook page. Yeah. Right. We have this new challenge. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe we can co-author it if you're interested. <laughs> um, we, we have a new challenge in Judaism, and that's people actually like us, and mm-hmm. and we have three distinct challenges that we don't know what to do with. Um, so you mentioned the South America connection. Um, at my work at the Jewish People Policy Institute, we were asked um, to look into this. Because it's a, it's a growing trend of interest in Judaism and conversions among uh, either people who are discovering uh, that their background is Jewish, you know, from the Inquisition, um, or evangelical Christians who are discovering that they're just really interested in Judaism, and the Jewish communities don't know how to deal with it. The Jewish communities in South America are very politically conservative. They're very closed off from conversions. 
And there's a growing sense, I've talked to people from those communities and from researchers who have looked at it, that a lot of these people may or may not be sincere and they come from poor backgrounds and they want to get access to the resources to the, the to the financial resources of the Jewish communities, which include, you know, JCCs and schools and and an ability to help uh, uh, poor people, etc. Aliyah to Israel. And and then once you add that fact that the whole Aliyah to Israel aspect, Israel is concerned or doesn't know if it should or shouldn't be concerned because having uh, c- um, converted gets you Aliyah to Israel. And so, you know, there are some people here who are like, is this, does this mean, you know, millions of people from South America are going to start you know, flooding Israel who may or may not actually be Jewish, you know, in their sincerity. There's so many questions here, but we have that. That's one. Two is the concept of intermarriage in America where there's a new trend, and and you're probably aware of this, and that's I'm leaving the halachic issue aside of Jewish mother, Jewish father. I'm putting that aside for now. Um, over the past few years, I think over the past generation, a majority of of the children of intermarried couples in America where one parent is Jewish and one parent is not are being raised Jewishly. I think Len Sachs, you know, uh, found this out. And and so that's a new finding where intermarriage is not necessarily leading to assimilation, but it's actually leading to a growth in net Jews. Again, putting aside the, the exact definition of who's a Jew and who's not. And in Israel, we have about 400,000 people who are socially Jewish but are not halakhically Jewish because you know most of them are from the former Soviet Union. And so we have these three... This is like a thesis I'm trying to develop here is that, and I don't know the answer, that's a problem, is that we have this new challenge where there's people who want to be Jewish and, and we're not including them correctly. And I think we're missing out on a huge opportunity for the state of Israel, for the Jewish people, um, for for the energy it could bring, for, for I don't know what. And, and we need to figure out what to do with these three distinct yet connected challenges right this is like a whole new thing we're always used to people hating us it's like no people like us right now what do we what do we yeah, do and, with this? And, and, and i often will will you know like my little kicker is like imagine when the one mahia from china comes along yeah. you know and well. and and just right you know like what if there's more chinese jews than there have ever been in history number of jews that could happen easily if if something caught on right you know so like what, what would that yeah. be like so, so there's that. So, you know, back to your question, Benny, I mean, like, like on the disruptive side, I mean, cause so in a way, like what I was describing there is the possibility that, that a more traditional, I mean, by, by which I mean a rabbinic traditional version of Judaism could actually have explosive growth if it were open to the kind of things that Dan is talking about and, and beyond. Uh, on, the, on the more disruptive side, if we're, if we're looking at the people who are, let's say, already Jewish, like, you know, they're born Jewish or they're, they're not Jewish, um, but they're interested in converting, but not to a more traditional form of Judaism, but to something new. And there are a surprising number of those people, you know, like I always heard, like, because my dad was a rabbi, like I always, I always kind of had this sense that people who want to convert to Judaism, like they're the most religious, like they, they like it the old, like they want to be Orthodox like that, you know, and, and it took me many years to kind of come to an understanding that, that there are a lot of converts who actually want the more progressive, the more adventurous, the the form of Judaism that I think of as like a uh, dissident form of Judaism because I was alienated. And so I'm looking to build the new and, and, but they're converting. So don't they like it? But no, they, they actually like the new kind, right? So there's a lot of those people too. So that's kind of the disruptive uh, potential area. Now, what, I what does it look say, like? Yeah, I used to say that I don't want to answer that question because I want to build the platform for it. I don't think that it's my place to describe it. Um, 
you know, I, I may not be the, I may not actually be in the, uh, in the, in the bullseye of the, the, the people who this is ultimately going to be built by and for, um, and I know I'm not right. Cause we're also talking about Jews of color. We're talking about all kinds of people that I am not one of them. Um, and, um, I think that I, I've come to see that as something of a leadership failure on my part that I'm I'm struggling to sort of figure out how much I can and should say at this point, because I, I do think about the story of the scouts, you know, the spies in the book of uh, Exodus that um, that that the or is it the book of numbers? I think it's numbers that that they. Um, you know, but the idea is that they send these scouts to scout out the land for 40 years and they come back with basically no information other than there's there's dangers there. But they don't say anything like particularly helpful about what what's good in that land. So they so my critique of them is always that they failed to give people enough of a vision to fight for, you know, to fight against those obstacles for. So I would say a few things and we could talk about more if you want. I mean, I, you sort of like dig them out of me. But I but but a few of them is like, number one, who is a Jew? I actually think that if you think about, uh, and again, I'm not necessarily asserting these, but I want to float them as possibilities. Sure, sure, sure. So, um, so if we think about Judaism in its different versions, who is a Jew has actually changed in every version. So in the mm -hmm. biblical version, who is a Jew is patrilineal defined. You're a right. Jew if your father was a Jew. In the rabbinic Judaism, it completely flips to matrilineal. You're, you're a Jew if your mother is a Jew. If your father is a Jew, you're not a Jew. Why, why did that happen? That's opposite of what it was in the Bible. Hmm? Do we know why that happened? Uh, there's theories. I'm not sure that we really know definitively. Um, but I, but, but probably like my, my um, suspicion is that there was something happening in the larger world where that made, in other words, that it wasn't, you know, people say it's because of rapes and you don't know who the father is. I, I doubt that. I, I think it's probably would be my guess is because where the Jews were living in, in other places in the world, that was how they did it. And and I sort of think about in our time where things are, uh, especially in the West, where we tend to see things as choices that adults make. I imagine a non-lineal Judaism where we understand that Judaism is a choice made by adults. Period. Uh, right now, you can you can be a, a child of Jewish parents and you can be raised with a Jewish education and with the likelihood that you probably will be a Jew when you grow up. You'll probably choose to be a Jew when you grow up, but. Maybe not a little different, but but certainly there would be no difference between a person who was born to Jewish parents and a person who converted, right? That both would be equally welcomed at the age of 18 or 13 or 21 or whatever age you want to set that as somebody who decides, I really want to be a Jew going forward. And and I actually think that defining it that way, that's not that partly that's a prediction and partly it's actually, I think, would be a good thing because again, it would if I if I didn't really think of my children as Jewish children, but instead I thought of them as potentially Jewish children, right? Then mm -hmm. I think the onus would be more on me to make the case for them so that they would want to be Jewish children. Whereas I think a lot of uh, parents kind of have this notion that their children are supposed to be Jewish, and then this child doesn't want to be or doesn't really care about it, and like kind of that's the end of it. As opposed to understanding that that's always it's always a choice. So so you know so just that's just one possibility. But who is a Jew is kind of well, one possibility. Let me, Another, let, let me jump really in. Let me jump in here because. It's a fascinating idea, um, and it ties into a lot of what's happening in America right now, where you have you have like you have people converting, you have many non-Jews who aren't converting who are going to synagogues on a regular basis, and 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 might even be members. I think I read a statistic that thirty percent of Reform congregation member members are not Jewish. 
Um, and, and they're going, and some of them are active. Um, if you talk to people like David Ingber in, in New York, he, he actually, and, and I think Amichai, they have like non-Jewish people who participate in their actual congregation and services because they connect to the messages or they connect to the style or whatever it is. Um, and, and that's a fascinating thought. You have this whole concept, you mentioned Jews of color, who are Jews, um, who, who don't look like typical American Jews, and maybe that'll change down the road. Um, I think in Israel, though, and, and you know, it's fine that we're speaking in kind of an American-centric Jewish thing because that's the story that we're talking about now, and then that's fine. We we forget that for at, at least, uh, you know, what I'm I'm going to take back part of what I was about to say. I was going to say all of Jewish history, and, and it's not all of Jewish history, but for the part of Jewish history we're aware of, it was very much ethnic, it was very much familial. Um, and, and you, the concept of a convert until very recently was also kind of weird, at least again, in, in biblical times, it was very common. And then there was like a whole stretch of period where it was not common. And now it's common again. Um, but in Israel, for example, we don't look at it as something that you choose. You, you're Jewish. Right. That's your nationality. That's your ethnicity. That's your ethnicity. You're, you're just born into it. We live in Israel. We're Jewish. That's who we are. It's like a tribal identity. You can practice the religious aspect of it. You cannot. We can keep the traditions. You cannot, but you're Jewish. That's who you are. How does everything you're saying connect or not connect to Israel where... Or the concept of a global Jewish people. Or the concept of a Jewish people where more than half of the world's Jews live here and the birth rate here is considerably higher than the Jewish birth rate in, in the rest of the world. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to minimize that I think those things are in great tension. And it may be that in the future, there is a renegotiated relationship between the two, up to and including that we understand ourselves to be more like cousins than siblings. In, in other words, that we, you know, we may be, to, to say that, to say that um, sort of Jews in Israel defined ethnically and Jews elsewhere in the world defined in some other way, I don't want to say religiously, that's a, another one of my characteristics that I might want to explore if we have okay. time, but sure, sure. That, that, it, that it may be that we can't say that that is definitional of a global Jewish peoplehood anymore. They're, they become too different. And so they're, they're schismatic, but we don't have to see schismatic schism as meaning like we hate each other and we want to have nothing to do with each other. We may see it as more like the division of, of tribes of some fashion, or we might imagine some way that will relate to one another in a different way in the future. But don't, but it won't be. These are our brothers in Israel, and they are just like us. But they accept that they live in Israel, and we live in America. It's like no, like these are a kind of Jew, and we're a kind of Jew. We're actually a very different kind of Jew, but we like talking to each other because we have a lot of commonality. Will those eventually split off so much that they become profoundly different groups? It's possible, and and I think that you know one may or may not like that result, but the whether we like it or not is irrelevant. You know, if it's if it's going to happen, like I'm not again, like I'm not um, necessarily advocating a you know, I'm not I'm not going around trying to say, like, I want to change the world in the way that will make me most happy. I'm, I'm trying to be a helpful futurist in saying, like, these things seem to be happening. Yeah, yeah, one yeah, way yeah. to one way to address it is to fight it. And that's going to be a losing fight. Another way to uh, to deal with it is to lean into it and to imagine like this is we're not going to stop this. How could we build a good relationship in, in light of this? And, and that's where I think the digital revolution is kind of interesting is because um, 
we are finding that there are quite a few Jews in Israel who are really attracted to what we're doing with Judaism Unbound. It's it's not as many as it could be in part because it's in English. Sure. What would it be like to have a Hebrew version of Judaism Unbound? What would what would it be? And so I actually think that there that that there is a subpopulation within Israel that might actually be able to be much much larger because it's small because people don't even know it's a possibility that might say, hey, we actually would like to define ourselves as Jews not by nationality but by some other way. So the state of Israel defines Jews as nationality, but we'd actually prefer to be part of the global Jewish world that defines its Judaism in a different way. And it may be that there are Jews in America. We know there are. They go to the APEC conference and whatever, you know, that, that are like, no, no, we want to define Jews by nationality. And we don't like the way that these other Jewish. So it may be that we have people in America and people in Israel that have a common definition of Judaism and people in Israel and people in America that have a common definition between them of Judaism. And we may have these like overlapping possibilities of ways of defining Judaism that in a past time, you might have said, oh, that's terrible. That that is, um, you know, that's destructive to global Jewish peoplehood. But in a future time, when everything else in our life is getting more thinly sliced and networked and, you know, these identities are not like they used to be, maybe a, a new version of what it means to be Jewish will actually be could be exciting and could solve some of our problems rather than than creating them. So I think there's a lot to be explored there. That's that's fascinating. It's something that I, I talk about in my work a lot when I see the divides that are coming up um, when you look at Israeli society and then you look at American Jewish society. And exactly, you know, I've, I've, I think we're really on the same page on this one um, in that you see a major split in Israel Um that's bridged maybe only by the existence of of still very traditional, uh, mostly mostly Mizrahi Jews who 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 kind of have a foot in both camps. But when you look at like very secular Israelis versus ultra orthodox Israelis and very Dati Israelis, you see almost two different groups of people with completely different worldviews. You look at American Judaism. And, and I had I had a, a very progressive rabbi tell me, I won't say who, because I don't know if he wants this to be public, but say when he looks at, ultra, especially during COVID, you know, during what was happening during COVID times with the ultra-Orthodox communities, he's like, how can I call these people the same people? How can I call myself a Jew and they a Jew? Like, I, I'm ready to split off. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what you said is really fascinating in that point. I, I don't know how it could be friendly. Yeah, I was gonna say. I, I, the, it, it seems like. It how does it painful. not go like? How it's, does it not go like full Sunni Shiite? It, 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 you know what? It could go full Sunni Shiite. I, th- I think. I think Reform and Orthodox already is full Sunni Shiite, and the only difference between Sunni and Shia, and I'm only a, a tiny expert on on Islam, um, but I don't think you can become one or the other. I, I mean, maybe you can, but if you marry someone, but you 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 can be. Orthodox and become reform. You can become reform and be orthodox, or be secular and become any of those, or or vice versa. You know, we're still in a place where, assuming you can still convert, even as painful as it is, especially in in orthodoxy and ultra orthodoxy in Israel, to convert both literally and figuratively. Yes, um, I, I accompanied a convert on his on his process, and it was just Levine Yavin. Yeah. Um, uh, Forget the difficulty of the process, uh, especially in Israel with the bureaucracy. We're still in a place where you can you can become, you know, you can switch over. You know, many people have family members who are. Um, we are you say are you suggesting a kind of future where we're not even looking at each other as the same people, and maybe there's like 
kind of people who are very conservative politically and religiously in Israel and the U.S. who are like, okay, we're, let's say, Jewish. I don't want to say A or B, but A or B. And then people who are kind of more progressive or liberal or we'll secular have, who are saying, no, we're, you know. I think we'll have to get different names. It's gonna we'll have to get different easy. names. Um, and that's possible. Look, I mean, you know, the, the nobody nobody called themselves Jewish in the Bible period. Yeah. You know, that, that was a that was a new name that they came about. So we again, it's one of what I was saying earlier about the retelling of the story where we retroject our, you know, later names and words and ideas into the past. And so it looks to us like there's this chain of continuity. And every we were Jewish since Abraham. Abraham didn't call himself a Jew, and yeah. you know, and neither did Moses, and neither did David, and you know, and so so. And what did they call themselves? They didn't call themselves the same thing. They didn't call themselves Israelites either. Israelites. Abraham couldn't have been an Israelite because that that has didn't exist yet. His grandson, you know. So um, so there are these you know there are these names Hebrews, you know everything, and so um, mm. so you know I I, I think that so, you know sometimes it's also interesting to think about like to what extent do these categories that we've placed Judaism into today that are almost like unimaginable to us that they would be different in the future. But if we look in the past, they were so different. So, right. and I'm not just talking about semantics. I'm saying like, you know, what I, that's what I'm saying. Like if you were to try to present rabbinic Judaism to a, uh, a priest in the temple, they would have like thrown you out. They would have said, this is crazy. This has nothing to do with Judaism they, they or whatever we call you. it. So <laughs> what do you say? They so would have crucified they might have you. Crucified you. <laughs> yeah, they might have crucified you. So <laughs> exactly. So, or at least had somebody else do it. Yeah. But the, um, <laughs> but the, the, um, but yeah, you know, like the, so, so, so I can imagine, I mean, I, I can't tell you that I can see, what it is with definition. I, and, and I think a number of futurists, you know, I'm an amateur futurist. I mean, people that are trained, you know, have a degree in futurism. It's a have thing? Said you can be a professional that, like, futurist? Dude. Yeah, there's a guy named David Pasig in, in Israel. And um, there's others that there's actually like a degree. They tend what? to say like what it means to be a futurist is, is not to sort of predict the future. It's just to understand the present really well mm. and to not, and to, and to sort of be able to describe where these present trends where they're going. might lead into the future and to not be afraid to describe that, even though it sounds very different from, from what we have today. And so I, I'm not sure that I can say exactly what it looks like, but I can imagine a world in which like there are, especially, especially if we're talking about a world in which we've also done what we were talking about earlier and there's so many more conversations. So we're not just talking about 14 million Jews anymore. We're talking about 140 million Jews, That's right? And I Jews. can easily imagine that breaking down into three or four different categories sure. of people who get together a lot on internet conferences and who talk to each other and who sort of see each other. as like, we're connected sort of maybe the way that we're connected, like Western people see them. I mean, we see a connection maybe between the U.S. and Christians Europe. talk about themselves, right? And Christianity has split off into... Yeah. You know, multiple right. churches and denominations and streams right. and whatever. Dude, right. if that happens. Yeah, I think that's a great example. I think that's a great analogy. Yeah. If that happens, Jews like like us, like we'll be like the OG Jews. The OG. <laughs> we'll be we'll be underground. It'll be, for real, though. It'll be like there'll be so many Jews who. Well, well how do you look? I mean, you, you said 14 million. I, I've seen estimates. And again, I don't know how to mathematically reach this, but imagine every period in Jewish history in which we lost a lot of people, either due to, you know, captivity, slavery, assimilation, forced disease. conversion, disease, death, Holocaust, you name it. And and the Jewish people, if none of those things would happen, and if we would have just kind of grown and be like, I don't know, 
pick a country that's that's a lot bigger. Italy. It, well, the Jewish people were similar in size to the Italian nation. Italy, Japan, whatever, we'd be like well over 100 million today. And there are a hundred million people out in the world who have Jewish roots of some kind. Most of them are just something else, like they're they're Christian or Muslim, or you. Basically, that's really it, probably. But um, yeah, that, that's really fascinating to think. You where know, gonna, where the, where could we be in a couple hundred years if either we split off, or if all these these kind of new groups kind of are allowed to take it their own way, or if people who are more liberally inclined split off from those who are more orthodox inclined. Or Israeli split off from, you know, North American Jewry, which is going in, in many ways in a different direction. That's just, it's a mind-boggling concept to think of where it'll go. Um, I, I'm, and, and the, the one thing that I would just suggest is that instead of using language like split off, what would it, what would, what would it, what, is there another language that we could use that would open up another thing to imagine? Like, like budded and networked, you know, or something like that. In other words, like, let's not imagine these people are floating away into, like, they're not crossing oceans, they're not going into space, you know, they're redefining something. Yeah. But but if we resist it, then they will split off. Yeah. If we yeah. can embrace it, then we potentially could keep them together in a new way that could be exciting, but it's something that we haven't seen before in the world. Well, I'm not so sure. So we have to be I'm excited not, and imaginative. I, first of all, I am excited. And I mean, it's kind of what I try to do. Uh, I guess I'd call myself maybe an amateur futurist also. I think you just added a new uh, line I can add to my bio, amateur futurist. If you add that to your bio. Doing it. You'll be set. No, yeah, do it. I'm doing it. Do it. Do do it. it. No, but the, what, you, what you're describing is exactly what I'm trying to do, and it fascinates me. Um, um, I, I don't know on which side I would end up. I would mm. think that by virtue, look... I, I'm in no way an expert because I'm I don't pretend to be an I don't expert. know where I would end up. But when I look at the course of history of other nations, the nations that have a geographical location such as Israel, if you if you extrapolate their in the projection of their history, uh, you know the future of of, of because of their uh, I don't want to say the word isolation because we're not isolated. We're living in a much more global world. We have technology, but in the past they were more isolated from one another. You have particular specific identities that that sprout or 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 go through a certain genesis process in that particular place. So, you know, I I don't see it as very far fetched at all that if you know if if this is realized in in a hundred years or so, you will have Israeli Jews who will see themselves less as Jews and more as just Israelis. Maybe then that, that will be the tribal Jews so to speak, and the rest of the world with a hundred million other Jews because if, if there's no longer any of, of this sort of uh, uh, requirement for matrilineal uh, conversion, uh, orthodox conversions or whatnot, um, I, I think it's almost just an... It, I mean, do you think it's inevitable? Is there is there a way, again, not, not using the word split off because there's a value to that, but... It, is, is there a way that it stays connected in the same way that we are now? Is, is this an inevitable process simply because of the demographics of it? We, you I mean, were talking before about the founders. What, how did you call it? The founder in biology? The founder's effect. Yeah, right, the founder's, the founder's effect. effect. You know, let's, let's put founder's effect on this. I mean, by, by virtue of, of demographics, if there are just way more Jews outside of Israel that feel differently based on the fact that they accept each other more than the Jews in Israel are willing willing to accept them. I mean, you don't really have to 
analyze that too deeply. I mean, it just it becomes just I, a, I think a the demographic process, reality. I think the process is happening. Whether we, mm-hmm. I think it's happening. Whether we want to call it, you know, a nice name or not, you know, um, and, and I agree with you. I don't. I think. I think that that's why I said, like, where would I be if this is happening? And and these are slow processes. It's not going to happen. Like, there's not going to be a decision where a group of people rise up and say, okay, from now on, we're no longer Jews. We're now, I don't know, mm-hmm. Bibleists, Abrahamists, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Right? It's not like it's. These are not flashpoint decisions, and you know, until until they build up to a point where, where they are. It's like it's like a build up thing. And it's one of these things where, like, you know, where, where am I in this? Because you can imagine the ultra-Orthodox and the strictly, fiercely Orthodox in both countries are going to be like, you're not one of us anymore. You know, they're already saying it to an extent. Yeah, you know, and by the way, like, I mean, I, you know, you, you'd you probably need a, an Israeli, well, maybe you, Dan, an Israeli amateur futurist to talk about this. But I think a lot about uh, that when I run into secular Israelis these days, in a way that I think is more so than than in the past, they will often say explicitly, I'm Israeli, not Jewish. Uh, whatever they mean by that exactly, but they're, and, and maybe I'm it's in particular uh, people that are in, in America, living in America now, but not only, and they say, I'm Israeli, not Jewish. Now, what's interesting is that there's also this other, these, these other components of Israeli society that are very emphatic that they are Jewish, whether that's the ultra-Orthodox or the settlers and, and the right. Um, so the question is, in a way, like, What's what's going to happen there? Like, what if Israel, for example, becomes a a more strongly self-defined Jewish state because their ultra-orthodox are growing and the and the right is has 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 solidifying its its uh its power? So then the question is like, well, so what's going to happen to all these secular Israelis who proudly go around saying I'm Israeli, not Jewish? They're either going to uh, be a dissident faction in Israel or they're going to end up leaving Israel, mm-hmm. and. Now they're going to come to America and elsewhere, and like, who are they going to be in this story? You know, um, are, are they? And and by the way, like, I think that um, I think there's actually room for those those Israelis and um, American Jews to work together to build to build some kind of uh, a new version of Judaism. Because when an Israeli says, you know, I'm Israeli, not Jewish. It depends. I mean, there are different people saying it sure. for different reasons, but the people that are saying it's it's not that they're saying emphatically, I'm an ethnic Jew. I'm an ethnic, you know, I'm an Israeli. They're saying I'm not Jewish. They're, it's, they're, uh, they, I'm, I'm not, not religiously Jewish. Jewish. Well, the, well, I, I think, I think yeah. what they're also saying in many ways is like, I'm not one of you Jews. I'm not, yeah. a, I'm not a diaspora oh. Jew. Mm-hmm. I am an Israeli Jew that's living here. In the, like, I, I think they're saying like, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not one. Of, like, I understand Judaism to be, ultra orthodoxy and right wing and that's not you know me. settler yeah. types and that's not i don't want to yeah, be I think, that I so think, i think what many of them might be saying is is actually look, look at look at the ethos that grew up in israel surrounding the origins of zionism you know it's the escape of the, the diaspora jew it's becoming a strong jew that has that's such a that, minority though no but but, uh, and, uh, and but just cons- look I'll in the, look in the psyche of people <laughs> I'm, I'm not even talking about religion at this point yeah, i'm yeah, talking no. about people that grow up here go through such a different understanding of, of who they are than Absolutely. a Jew in, in the States and that we're an independent country. We're a political, we're a polity. We have a military. We're not, you know, there's a, there's a self-defining, you know, we're in charge it's of not the a destiny. Sort of it's a, a very concrete thing. It's a very concrete thing. Yeah. And when that person, I see it, I see it in my wife. Okay. I see it when, you know, when, when that person is traveling in America and she meets American Jews, there's a very 
even though she is very progressive and pluralistic in her outlook as to how she wants to practice her Judaism from a cultural understanding of, you know, how does she behave as a Jew? She would not ever feel uh, an affinity for, for, you know, the diaspora. I'm not even going to say American Judaism. It's just the diasporic. I do not have a country. I'm, you know, generic American. I'm generic German. I'm generic British. You know, she's, she wants yeah. to be a progressive, pluralistic Israeli Jew. Yeah, no, I, I grew up. I grew up as as a child of an Israeli parent and an, and an American who made Aliyah and, and became Israeli. And I grew up as a child of them in America. And I always felt a little bit out of place because Israelis in America are it's, it's like a whole different subgroup. And I remember meeting for the first time when I went to college, and I would meet other Israelis, and I'd be like, "Oh, there you are." I was like, "It's it's it's a, a different experience." When I, when I work with uh, Israeli groups in in uh, in the US, I, I often will um, say to them, like the thing that you have to understand, if you're saying that you don't like the institutions of American Jewish life and you don't connect to them, like what you need to understand is that the vast majority of American Jews also don't like the institutions <laughs> of American Jewish life and don't connect to them. And that's what I'm saying. Like, yes, there's a difference in sensibility that Israelis may you know, feel like they, they do have the sense that, but a lot of Americans feel like, like, this is our this is our country. Like I don't I don't feel like a sort of a miserable diasporic right, Jew without right, a land. Right. I feel like this is my land. Like yeah, this is my country. Sure, so I feel sure. proud and I feel like I have a country. So I actually feel like I have a lot in common with that uh, Israeli. Um, but the, but on the Jew Judaism question, um, I feel like it's not working for both of us. And I actually think there's a lot of um, a lot of possibility in working together to build something new that would work for, for both of us. And I don't think that we should assume that it has to be diasporic or Israeli. That I remember I asked a friend of mine who's a really very smart guy, I said to him, do you think that the future of Judaism is going to be defined in Israel or in the diaspora? And he said, that's a stupid question. In the digital age, geography doesn't matter. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. defined. It's going to be defined on the Internet, you know, and, and I mean, I'm not sure that, that that might be an overstatement, but I think it's an interesting piece to think about. What do you think, Dan? I, I I recently wrote a piece, um, and this is something that I discussed with you about uh, when I when I consulted you about what my next project is going to be about digital Judaism and how what we saw during the the last year of COVID. Maybe we can you can mention your your project with Jewish Live and what you're trying to do there. Um, one of the possibilities that does open up is of boundaryless communities. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's limited. I think it's limited by what it can do. I think at the end of the day, as much as, as we have become digital in our lives, we are still, I, I think we, we're, we're social animals. We're still, as you like to say, Benny, we're still just big monkeys, right? And we need to be physically around. I'm adding this, but you say, you call us monkeys. Well, no, that was... You say it in a different context. I say it in a different context. I know, but but we, we are monkeys. You can't escape your biology. You, can, you cannot escape your short, biology. In such a short... Yeah, you, yeah, you have a monkey brain. You can't, you can't, you can't escape that. You, evolution is much slower than than the, than, 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 than there's one pandemic and now all of a sudden right. we're we're living in a digital version of ourselves. But and, but 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 the what the past year showed us and and it was an acceleration. It was a catalyst for existing processes that I've written about, and I want to focus on my next thing and write about this: the evolution of digital Judaism and the possibilities it offers. And and, and Dan, you're one of the people who are really taking this forward in, in a major way. Um, yeah, it creates the possibility that you can have some sort of a community and some sort of Jewish life that crosses boundaries. And if I, you know, I'm watching Jewish Live, and and and, and that could be my Judaism. And there's a lot of people I think 
um, you know, Amichai Lau, he's, he's, he told me he's trying to start this movement where he's going to be, he's going to have more people follow him only online than he sees in person. And, you know, I, th- I think that's another possibility to consider of, of how the digital age affects everything that we're talking about here. Um, do you want, you want to jump in and, and, and well, explain I mean, what you're doing thing, with Jewish life? Yeah. I mean, one thing just to think about like that is, is also to understand that we're still really only at the beginning of it. And so a lot of times the whole idea of disruptive innovation, right, is that part of the reason why these shifts are not recognized early on is because they actually are inferior. So I'm mm. not here to tell anybody that having a Jewish life online is just as good as having a Jewish life in person. My partner Lex will often say things like that. I don't. I don't say it. I, I think it is inferior. But the question is, where is it all going? Mm. And um, and and you know, I mean, I've seen the Matrix. Uh, you know, there's dystopian, but I can understand. You know that that there's a time coming not so long from now where we can actually feel much more like we're in a physical space with with other people online. And who knows? I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can't yet imagine. So, so I, um, so I think like what's more interesting than like the fact that it's digital is the fact that what COVID has shown us is like you said, Dan, is that like for the first time we've actually gotten a taste of what a non-geographic, non-geographically oriented Judaism could feel like. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it feels pretty good to a lot of us. You know, it's, it's, it feels really good to me right now that I can talk to the two of you for, for two hours. And I've had a lot of conversations with folks in Israel and other places um, over this last year that I, that I wouldn't have had before because people would prioritize in person over online. Yeah. And so they just wouldn't take two hours to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Whereas now people are like, they, they're willing to do it. You know, uh, in some of our conversations, like there's things happening, there's conversations happening about the future that may be happening online. The manifestation may be in person, but the the conversation wouldn't have ever happened sure. if we didn't have the digital tools. And again, who knows what's coming in the future? So the way I would look at it is to say, okay, let's let's think about this and say, let's let's take as a given that it is inferior. But is it is it is something happening that we can imagine leading to somewhere very exciting? And what what might that be? And um, so with Jewish Live, we, we I mean, one way to look at Jewish Live is it's a COVID project. It was really driven by the idea that a year ago, just a little over a year ago, when all of a sudden we had this sense that all the Jewish events, there were conferences that I was supposed to go to. All of a sudden they were all being canceled, like all within a week or so. And um, and I was thinking about like, you know, again, maybe this is where my medical background helps. Like I was listening to, you know, Dr. Fauci and all these people and and I was saying, like, wait a second, if I'm understanding this correctly, that there's not going to be a vaccine, you know, 18 months is, is going to be optimistic. And it turned out that it was before that. But I mean, like that it was going to be. So I was like, so, and, and social distancing is the way to deal with this. I was like, I don't understand how this could possibly be a two month issue. Like this is going to be an issue of like at least a couple of years, if not more and maybe forever. And so let's let's immediately jump on this idea and let's make sure that in the short term, there's some way of continuing to have a Jewish life, even though everything in person is going to be canceled. And so, so we didn't really know what we were creating. And, and it, you know, it turned out that we, we tried all kinds of experiments and some of them were really great and some of them were okay and, and whatever. Now that we start to see maybe the kind of other side of COVID coming, I've, I've been really trying to tell people that, um, don't think of Jewish live as, as a butterfly, like Jewish live is the cocoon. 
you know, that, that I don't, I'm not in the, I'm not in the live streaming Jewish business. Like that's not, I don't think we're going to be doing that in a year from now. We will here and there, we'll have one or two shows or whatever, but like, we're not here to make a digital Jewish TV network. I actually hope someone does that because I think it would be an awesome thing, but that's not our mission. Like our mission is to do this like Jewish futurism stuff. We just happen to, and, and maybe that's an example of what I was saying about like, uh, futurism is like seeing the present with great clarity. It's like, it felt like we should do that right now, a year ago, mm. but that doesn't mean that, that live streaming video is the future of Judaism. And so now as we're starting to think about the other side of it, we're like, okay, so, so now let's go back to our mission, which is to, um, kind of, uh, create this movement of people in a positive and excited way, thinking about a future of Judaism that will look very different from the past. You know, what, what, what should we do now? And we're still actually in this process of thinking about like, well, will it be like a, you know, and also what to do with all this material that we've collected and created over the last year. We've been talking about like, should we kind of re reorganize it? So it's more like a Khan Academy where you could just learn all kinds of Jewish things. So there's all kinds of possibilities, including lots of in-person ideas that we want to do. But, but that's where I always want to be clear that it wasn't like COVID came and all of a sudden we decided to change our, our mission. Like, we, you know, we did something for a year because it, it was the right thing to do that year. Um, I, I noticed, um, I haven't looked at it in a while, but I, I've looked through your website. I've looked through, you know, and then things pop up and, and sometimes I tune in here and there. And um, one thing that was interesting to me, and maybe I just missed it, it seems most of your, con I'm, I'm not getting a lot of like traditional Judaism on your content, right? I'm yeah. not seeing... Is that is that on purpose? Is that just the kind of people who gravitated to this? Yeah, well, it's it's on. Uh, I mean, it's partly it's a partly a combination of those things, I think. But um, partly it's also like there's there's there is a lot of places with traditional Jewish content already. So the gap in the market, so to speak, was for mm. the less traditional stuff. And but that's also it's that it's that fundamentally that is the core of our mission. Like the way I think about the core of our mission, it's it's like the people who. Are, were like me, but didn't have the the background to sort of be able to do it on their own, but who were kind of, you know, like, oh, this Jewish stuff, it doesn't really do much for me. Um, we're really targeting at them. Now, mm. I don't think that the traditional content is really going to appeal to those people. I mean, Chabad, for example, thinks that it will. So, you know, they should, they should live and be well and try their, their thing. And I think it does appeal to some people. I'm not saying it's not going to appeal to any people, but I say, I'm saying it's not going to appeal to mm -hmm. most mm -hmm. of them and the ones that it will, like they have Chabad. So, sure. so we really, what, what, what's needed is for, for us to address the people for whom that doesn't appeal. So that's why, you know, what's been interesting is, um, and this was like another piece uh, when you were talking about like the, you know, the future, um, a lot of folks that have gravitated towards our content have been queer, you know, and LGBTQ and trans. And um, that was not, by specific design. It's not like we were trying to create a, a queer Jewish world or a queer Jewish project. It's just that a project that is profoundly open and that says, you know, we, we're imagining a Judaism that's like profoundly different from what it has been. Well, it turns out that one of the big changes that I think a lot of the Jewish organizations aren't recognizing, and it's also, it's hard for them to know what to do if they did recognize it, is that there's such a, uh, that the young generations are thinking in such a new way about gender. Well, what do you do if your whole thing is defined by, you know, a binary gender and, um, you know, at best you can say, oh, well, we understand there are other people out there, so we invite them too, but they're not going to be at the center of it. Well, that doesn't feel like at the end of the day, like it's going to be a very successful 
approach. Whereas if you say, hey, we're in this process of reimagining everything, you know, then I think the people who kind of say, well, you know, I don't fit into the gender categories of the old thing, I would have thought that that means I have to drop out or just be tolerated on the sidelines. But you're saying that I can actually be in the center of creating something new, and maybe we'll be able to figure out how it defines itself such that you know, the gender spectrum actually is definitional and core to it. Those, be, those folks are very like excited about that. So, you know, that, those are, that's just an example of something that was not like, you know, an intentional, like it was in our mission statement, but it turns out that it, yeah. it, it happens. It's something that blew my mind away. Um, it, are you familiar with this? I forget the exact statistic, but it's something like 70, 80% of teens in America identify as queer is mm. that is that a correct statistic it's not quite as high as that benet will benet cites between a third and two thirds a third and two but... okay it, it was a high no, a lot higher number than i imagined that's a lot and and this came from this measure. came from my conversation with benet that that you you introduced us not that do you understand the difference because i only understood the difference like a couple weeks ago um maybe for the listeners and me <laughs> do, do you want to take this on i mean it's I would say, because oh, I, I actually just asked Benet for those articles today or yesterday so that I could read them to fully understand. So, but I think that my understanding is that it's, it's um, what they're saying is that when you, that, that the categories of sexual orientation and gender identity, we used to think of when we grew up, you know, most of us were, were explained that they're a binary, you know, you're either male or female. And, and you're either gay or straight. Gay or straight, right? And yeah. I think that a lot of the the young people today understand the reality of the world and also themselves as not quite a binary like that. So they might say that doesn't mean that I'm if I'm a uh, if I'm a cisgender male. It doesn't mean that if I that if I generally want to date cis women, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm not heterosexual. But saying like, but no, I don't understand myself as heterosexual, right? I understand myself as as something you know, different from that. And, and also, you know, I think that a similar dynamic is in play with genders. People say like, look, I mean, it's not that I'm, it's not that I was assigned male at birth and now I'm, and now I understand myself as female. It's that I was assigned male at birth. And a lot of times that works for me, but not all the time. And I kind of actually am more comfortable saying that I'm somewhere on a spectrum. You know, and so so when you open it up like that and you say there's a spectrum and what you might be on the spectrum is actually very, very close to what people looking on the outside assume you are. Um, but in your own self-understanding, like you're not you're on the spectrum. You're just you're just you're just not that far towards, the, you know, what, what would be the binary on that yeah. spectrum. And I think that that understanding is is now um, sort of widely uh, sort of accepted among I mean, young folks. Like I, I remember telling my kids that somebody that we knew uh, has had transitioned, you know, and that we knew that person as a boy, and and now their uh, their their actual identity is a girl, and they're going they're they're out about that now. And you know, my wife and I, when we talked about it, we were like, oh, that's you know very interesting, and we're supportive. You know, when I told my kids, like they didn't care, like they, it was like a nothing. And they were like, so. You know, and I was like, okay, you know, like that. So that, so you, you see, generationally, it was just a profoundly different and um, uh, experience. And and I think that that. So in a world in which like the understanding of of sexual orientation and gender is that there's no such thing. Not that that's an overstatement. That there's no such thing as gay or straight, and there's no such thing as male or female. But that the vast majority of people are somewhere in between those things. Then I think that starts to become a self reinforcing 
uh, understanding of the world. And then the question is like, what do you do with uh, with inherited traditions that 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 see things as binaries? By the way, I, I think like one of the things that we've been exploring on Judaism Unbound over the last few weeks is trying to think a little bit by analogy with Judaism itself. Right? We have a binary Jew and non-Jew. Uh, what if what if a better way to understand Judaism is that people can be on a spectrum of Jewishness. Does that, does that mean like I can be a Jew today and tomorrow I'm I'm not a Jewish and then next Thursday I'm a Muslim and then and then I'll come back to the fold and be be Jewish on the holidays uh, only because I like if your heart if, if your heart tells you that that's what you are then I would say yes but I mean I but I think we're not talking about people that are just like experimenting I think we're we're saying that that a person who who says like you know look I don't want to convert to Judaism I don't I don't actually feel by the way a lot of a lot of uh, spouses of Jews say this it's not that they uh love Christianity and don't want to convert to Judaism, yeah. which is, I think, in my childhood, a lot of people thought, like, if right. you don't want to convert to Judaism, that means you must want to be a Christian. And that's right. not good because we have, you know, intermarriage. It's it's actually people saying, like, no, I, I'm not Christian either. Like, I'm not, I don't observe, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't, but you're asking me to convert to Judaism. That's, that seems fake to me. I'm not, right. I don't, yeah. I'm, I'm not Jewish either. Right. You, you I just, just want to be a, a person, you, you know, just and, defined, I, and, I do uh, and I do Christmas and like, that's okay. Yeah. So, you know, what what would we call that? Right. So, well, Judaism so, doesn't have a word for that. I, I have, Judaism I have. says you're either a Jew or a non-Jew. But what is that? That's something else. So this By the is, way, there have been words for it in the past. There have been a Gertoshav, you know, a resident right. alien. There have been a uh, God-fearer. You know, these were people in the in the uh, ancient period who were not Jewish, but they they were very connected to the Jewish community. So we actually have had those categories. So because Amichal Lalavi talks about that as he well. He talks about the Gertoshav concept, and he created yeah. a whole marriage a, a, a framework to marry Jews and non-Jews and have it be within the framework of Judaism according to the Gertoshav concept. But but you're right. I mean that that is it's it it's it's interesting and 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 it's scary for a lot of people, especially the people I guess who are in the Jewish world. It's very scary. Dude, and, my brother-in-law. That that's like Dan just described my 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 sister's husband. Like my sister's Jewish. She very strongly identifies as a non-God believing Jew, but very Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her husband is a, I mean, I guess he comes from a, what was originally back, you know, at some point in time, a Christian family. They don't identify as Christians. They're not Christians. They don't believe in Jesus yeah. Christ. And this is where, but they have a Christmas tree Christmas because that's just what their tradition is to yeah. do. And this is where a lot of people, and, I, and I'm split myself on this. And they're raising their daughter as a Jew. And, and, and this is exactly the point that I mentioned earlier in that article that I keep trying to write and never get to is that, you know, I, I don't know how to handle this. And maybe this is that conversation that the Jewish world, I think this is the conversation that the Jewish world needs to have because within the Orthodox world and within Israel, which is driven by an Orthodox mindset, certainly the right in Israel is driven more by an Orthodox mindset. It's, it's, it's a binary thing, like you said. And in, and in America, it's like, no, you're, if you're, if you're not, you're the fallback is Christian. And, and the thing is, at least for younger Americans and certainly, um, for, from, I'm going to assume people who are not politically conservative. Okay, I mean it's an assumption that I that I think would stand up for the most part to statistics. The fallback to to not being Jewish, let's say, does not mean Christian. It, mm-hmm. it means you're this like neutral American or this generic American that I talked about earlier. And a lot of people don't know how to wrap their heads around that. And I'm not saying I'm advocating for this or against it, but it's a reality we have to contend with. And one of the things that I point out in this in the current work that I'm that I'm trying to get sounds out sounds like your article is pretty written. 
Oh, it's it's weird. It sounds like no, no, no. Done. We're we're in final editing, and I just have to update it to some COVID realities. Mm. Um, it, no, it's it's written, and we're we're through the biggest part of the editing phase. It's it's just what I learned, um, with my last book project is that from when you finish writing, to, to when, to when you go through peer review, to when you go through editing, to when you go through the graphic work of trying to publish it, is just as long as the writing process, sometimes even longer. Yeah. And, and definitely took, more... It took you off track there. You're making a very good point. took me very much off track. Um, what was I saying? That this this is a new reality, and and the truth is, certainly for younger Americans, and, and like I said, my sense is people who are less politically conservative, is that you know people are worried about intermarriage rates high intermarriage rates among young jews and it's not leading to assimilation in, in some cases it is but it's not leading into in a, into an assimilation to christianity it's leading in, right. into assimilation to again i don't i don't mean to disparage anyone but to this like generic americanness okay something that by the way you can't do in certain places you know uh, and you certainly couldn't do in certain periods of time in the 1950s in america you couldn't become a generic american and that's why that's why in the 50s and in the 60s, when synagogues were at their height, non-Orthodox synagogues were at their height of, of the American scene, if you left Judaism or if you intermarried, it would often be to become something else because you had to have that religious communal anchor to be American or to be whatever it is. And today that's not the case. And so I'm less worried about, and people don't get this, and I'm trying to explain to them all the time, is like, these non-Jewish spouses are not Christian, okay? Because in the American understanding, Christianity is not your fallback. It's something you choose, okay? And and it's something you have to choose. Who's, who's worried about it? When you say that the people... Orthodox, Orthodox people, Jewish communal leaders from the previous generation. Are you assuming... Are Jewish you, institutions. Are, are you thus... Um, are you saying, though, that maybe they... They're concerned is that the person is going to become something else, a.k.a. Christian. They're going to stop or, being or, Jewish. The, so, the so narrative... The narr but the narrative still holds for them, right? The narrative because they're says, stopping being the narrative Jewish. Says they that, don't care to what that they become. This, that when you inter the narrative says when you intermarry, you've taken a step out of Judaism. Now, now it's important to point out, and it's an article I'm, I'm writing now, um, the Jewish levels, okay, Jewish behavioral levels, for people who are in married to another Jew are massively higher than for people who are married to a non-Jew. Okay. So if we take two average Jews in America, one not Orthodox, let's say one who's married to a Jew, one who's married to a non-Jew, the Jewish behavior levels. Like if you ask a hundred questions of, you know, what is your day? What is your gear? What is your, your ritual observance look like? Those who are married to other Jews are going to be much higher. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, the assumption until now, and very serious sociologists and demographers have, have made this claim, a look at the rates of intermarriage, we're losing all these Jews. You're not losing all these Jews. You're losing some of them because they're just not interested and they're just, you know, becoming generically American. But many of them are being very Jewish and their spouse is not Jewish. And it's not that that spouse is Christian. They're just not Jewish. Right, but again... In the Orthodox mindset, those people are, you know, especially if the spouse is a woman, are going to have children, and then the that, child is not a Jew. That's an Orthodox mindset, and in an Orthodox. But we're talking with the Orthodox mindset; they don't care that the person is not be, becoming a Christian. It's that the person's not a Jew. 
you're, you're welcome to jump in here. <laughs> no, well, I, but I just think like there's another element of it, which is like when you look at those Jewish behaviors, it's like, um, I mean, I feel like there's a certain kind of emperor's new clothes dimension to this story where it's like if you it's, if you marry, you know, the, the emperor's new clothes, sorry, this little child comes along and he points out that the emperor is actually naked. Right. But if that child never shows up, then everybody kind of goes on their their business, you know, kind of because nobody nobody kind of pointed it out or nobody kind of. And, and I think like if if, uh, you know, probably a Jew marries a Jew, then they kind of light Shabbat candles, you know, without thinking. And they're, and they're like. Well, this is meaningless, but then nobody ever points it out. So it's like, okay, so they did it. So their child will do it. But so what? You know, what is that, what is that bringing to the world? And, and and if somebody perhaps marries somebody who's not Jewish and, and the spouse says to them, why do you do this thing? And they say, oh, I don't really know. Well, that's the end of it, right? Um, but maybe that's not a, that not one is not good and one is not bad. They, what they both reveal is that this particular Jewish practice is not uh registering as significant to most Jews. So the question to me is like, I would you know take it from a, a completely different way and to say, look, let's understand that the intermarriage is going to happen. It's happening. Like that, yeah. that is just happening. Given now, the, the challenge is now that we have recognized that many of these Jewish practices are fundamentally empty. Now, they may not actually be empty and they may be empty. The first question is, are they empty or not empty? We certainly haven't marketed it very well. So it may be that number one, we have to you know, do a better job of explaining to people why these aren't empty. And I think that if people recognize that they weren't empty, then the intermarried person would probably also do a lot of them. Uh, or we recognize like an emperor's new clothes kind of situation, like these practices are actually empty. And they, and by the way, lighting Shabbat candles, for example, we don't have probably time to get into it, but it's a fascinating story that it actually wasn't really an important tradition ever. You know, what happened was that and the women yeah. were lighting the candles because the men were at synagogue and they needed a light on to have <laughs> dinner by because you ate dinner after synagogue. So, but, and over time that became ritualized, but it, it's not like from men, it's not from the Torah. It's not even from the yeah, Talmud. Right. It's a, it's, and the reason, you know, the reason why we have the bracha that we do is they actually stole it from the Hanukkah candles. So like the whole thing is like a fascinating story. Why, why of all things are we counting the number of people lighting Shabbat candles as the, as a definitional thing about whether you're a Jew, as opposed to how many people believe that other people are created in the image of God? You know, how many people believe that our role in the world is to, is to, is to make the world a better place for, for future generations. Like, and I would guess that a lot of the intermarried people if we would ask them, hey, do you believe that other people are, are created in the image of God? Do you believe that like our task in the world is to make the world better for future generations? They would answer yes. And so then I would look at those people and say, oh, my God, what a success. They're all so Jewish. I, right. I, but I, we're not asking. So, you know, it, but, yeah, but more, I agree with that. More seriously. Right. I, I would go in and say, like, it's our challenge as Jewish leaders or Jewish creators. It's our challenge to to imagine and then sort of help create and and teach and invite others into the creation of a Judaism that's worthy of of maintaining that of that, and, and yeah. that people feel is worthy of maintaining I, and and I think that if we actually did that a lot of these challenges and problems would go away I, I agree with you wholeheartedly and I and one of the things that I chiefly and and wholeheartedly to use that word again lament here about about life in in Israel where the trend is to be more, uh, toward towards the the tribal version or the religious version of things is that it, it seems like we're at this particular part in you know, a place in time where the ritual 
is 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 it's almost sacrosanct. It's it's just it's much. It absolutely more, is. It's much more important to you know. It's as if people are keeping score. Like, what what do you do that's that's Jewish? Do you like you said you like candles? Do you keep kosher? What level do you keep kosher? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you make it more? How do you say machmir? More stringent. More stringent. Yeah. And 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 I think that the you know in so many ways, and this doesn't describe everybody, so we're not generalizing, but like in so many ways. I don't think that people are are, are focusing on those on those questions. Well, hang that you on, just I'm, ask. Gonna, I'm gonna push back on that because and next week we're gonna have um, kind of a counter story to this, and it just happened to be that way. Next week we're we're gonna have a guy who grew up secular and and became ultra orthodox, and is an incredibly thoughtful individual. And and, and I think you're assuming no, but I, people who are people who are orthodox and people who are orthodox find a lot of meaning. I didn't say it, all people. I didn't. I didn't. Most. I think most yeah. of them do find a lot of meaning in the rituals, and, and in the study, and in the the practice, and in those ritual observances of Judaism. So, you know, for we're talking about two different things, though. I'm saying that I think that meaning for many people here is found through rituals more than what Dan said, which is ultimately classically speaking the essence of what it is to be jewish but that's a, that's a debate within judaism is what is the point of being jewish uh, but i think that the and i think this is that i think this exists, is the, i think this is the orthodox non-orthodox oh, divide in israel this is the crux exactly of that debate so i don't what think it, is the point of judaism and and i think to go full circle i don't think it ever gets resolved I don't oh, no. think it is ever possible. It can't get resolved. It no. can't. I think it's it's, it's that's inherently the, that's schismatic. The, the you know streams that that you alluded to that could happen is because you know is it what do we have now? It's the essence of Judaism is doing what God said. The essence of Judaism is making the world a better place or making my life better, or the essence of Judaism is it's just who we were born to and it's our people. I think we can we can talk about three maybe if we want to break it mm-hmm. down three kind of directions of what we can say is Judaism. And some people combine different aspects of all of them. Some people combine all three, some people combine two, some people just do one. Okay. But again, you can't you can't necessarily resolve them, you know. No. Um but they don't live in harmony with each other. They can? They can. They absolutely can. And that's what's tragic is that they absolutely can. And I find that um people that can't appreciate the nuance of uh, of what of what could be make it very difficult for other people to find their place. That's because of our monkey brains. Uh, monkey brains. <laughs> because of our politics. And it was po- driven, politics. Driven, driven by our monkey brains. Politics are driven by our monkey brains. Absolutely. Are you are you following what's happening here in the political system? Does it interest you? You know, uh, a little bit, you know, I mean, I, I glance at it. I kind of pay, I pay attention, like I, whatever it was that you talked about earlier. I, I did know about that. Oh, Gilad Karif, you know, so yeah, I mean a little bit, but, um, but not, not in a super, you know, I'm not uh, reading the headlines every day or reading the articles every day. Maybe the headlines. Probably better off. What was it? Was it in a conversation with you? I'm trying to remember that you you refer to one of the possibilities where things could go is, is kind of as a wisdom culture or as a like, yeah, was that you? Yeah. Yeah. Because, because I think that the question that I'm trying to raise there, it, it, it gets to what you were talking about with like, 
what's the opposite of Jewish? You know, and I think in a lot of people's minds, the op- like you were saying, the opposite of Jewish is Christian. And it takes a lot of time to unlearn that in all kinds of ways, right? Um, you know, only Jews think that the opposite of meat is milk, right? Uh, that, <laughs> you know, so, so, so these things are culturally determined. Yeah. Um, so I think we have placed re- Judaism in the religion category. And I actually think sort of in this interesting way, right? Uh, uh, perhaps Zionism was the first move against that, right? Which moved Judaism into a the uh, ethnos category or, you know, um, I mean, you could argue that it was that earlier, whatever. But the point is that, um, that you know, when you think about Zionism, then then the opposite of Israeli is Palestinian or Arab, right? Or something like that. Again, I, not my politics, but I'm just saying, like, sure, you sure. can see it's, if, it's a, if it's a nationality, then the opposite of it is the nas- nation that we don't get along with, right? right? Um, the opposite of American Jew is not Palestinian. Um, you know, the and the opposite of American Jew is not Christian, right? So and and when you and when you if you were to ask my children or Dan's children what's the opposite of Jew, they would say they would say Muslim. Arab. Uh-huh. Okay, Arab. yeah, Arab. Right. Arab. So, well, you know, an Arab and Muslim are two, are different. But but right. if you say Arab or if you say Muslim, like those are two different. Like you're you're revealing which category you're mm-hmm. putting Judaism in. Because if you say Arab, then it's ethnic. If you say Muslim, then it's religious. Right. But, but the, you but, might say both, and you know what. And, and I think in Israel, there's a there's a, a tension between whether it is both or one or what, does one predominate. Uh, the, the, um, the, my, my point was more that it's the context in which they live, that in America, right, your neighbors right, are right. No, Christians, the dominant group. And here it's it's uh, the Islamic world. Yeah. Right. But I, I would like to put Judaism, for example, in the genre of and I, I say this with caution because I'm not saying definitively, but I'm saying it's an interesting. But what if Judaism is put into the into the genre of self-help? Um right? Or wisdom tradition, right? In other words, so so you can say, like, could you be a Jewish Christian? Maybe. Uh, in other words, could you be could you be a Christian who uses Jewish technologies to, um, you know, to find to find ways to live life in a more meaningful way than you find that Christianity helps you? I don't know. But if you put but if you put Judaism into a category where its opposite is not Christian or Muslim, but is um you know, the seven habits of highly effective people or how to win friends and influence people, you know, Rabbi Stephen Covey, Rabbi Stephen Covey, Rabbi Stephen Covey. Yeah. You know, which that's the genre. Well, he's, you know, Stephen Covey is the other religion, you know, the yeah, other, yeah. the other our rivals, right. Or whatever, you know, um, what would that look like? Right. That, and, that's interesting and, because you, and, you, you can talk about that in the context of how a lot of American and actually even Israeli Jews gravitated towards Buddhism or yeah. or or yoga or or yeah, transcendental meditation. or eastern eastern kind of meditative or contemplative uh, practices, which you could define as a religion, but you know the whole concept of a Judist, right? Like a Jewish Buddhist, and and when we talk about it in that sense, you know, and, and again going back to Amichai, who we've mentioned a few times, he's got like a whole thing, like once a month where it's 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 a Zen meditation Kabbalat Shabbat thing that he does. Right, we for, for some reason, maybe it's not for some reason. But it's for a very good reason. When we talk about Buddhism and Zen and meditation, and again, go, yoga, where a lot of Israelis go to India for a long time after the army, that doesn't seem to be in conflict with Judaism, right? You talk about people who, uh, you, I think, on your channel, you have Eastern kind of meditative practices on Jewish Live. Mm-hmm. 
that doesn't seem to be a problem. Well, but well, the second we bring in Christianity or Islam, that becomes competitive. Because Buddhism, because Buddhism and Hinduism was never in conflict with the Jewish people in any sort of. A, no, I, I agree. It's just so distant. I agree, and it's also I don't know if they they conceptualize it as religion in the in the Western sense. It's more. Nah, it's probably they consider it like a culture. But also, but another another piece of this is, and this is where like you know some of what I talk about can sound untraditional, but. I'm drawing some of my philosophy from even Orthodox rabbis. So in particular, Yitz Greenberg and Art Green, and who's not Orthodox, but oh, yeah. a rabbi, who talks about um, like one possibility is that you can be an atheist. And another possibility is that you can believe that God is the oneness of all things. That's a pantheist or a panentheist. Or you can believe that God has engaged in what's called symptom or self-reduction which is basically Yitz Greenberg, who's the Orthodox rabbi's point of view, that God is, is somewhere. I mean, God is, God, you know, but God as a, as a presence on earth that in, interacts, you know, that changes things on earth, that is, that is from the past. That no longer is true. God, and so to my mind, whichever, to my mind, in a certain way, the panentheist vision, the idea that God is the oneness of all things, is the most from, so to speak, is the one that at least imagines that God is kind of still around. Right, the God, the God that uh, is is fully withdrawn. Well, that's a Ramba, the that's a Rambamist view. They're kind of the same. I mean, God's not around. So why why are we praying to a God that's not around? Like, why are we praying to a God that doesn't do anything? You know, what if if God is not if if God is by definition not uh, interfering in the world mm -hmm. and not doing miracles anymore? Like, what are we praying about? What is that about? Now, I think that certain um, you know theologians and uh, and other people can can give you a theory. But I think that for most modern people, those theories don't really work. And so it's it's really hard to understand why we're praying and why prayer is at the center of what it is to be Jewish yeah. if we put it in the category of religion. Now, one of the things that I'm interested in is this possibility that, that let's say, that, that I think actually works with any of those three cat, uh, approaches that says, look, um, when we think about the time in history when... Judaism as we know it uh, came about, that human beings were very powerless, especially Jews. Jews were very powerless. Jews were subject to the power of these empires. Human beings in general were subject to the power of nature in a way that they still are, but, but, um, but we like to think so. that we aren't. <laughs> and, um, and, and so the idea that you would um, imagine God as this uh, external force that was doing things in the world and that you would need to appease and 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 ask to treat you as well as possible made a lot of sense sure but weather related almost nobody related. almost nobody who's not i mean i don't even know exactly what orthodox and ultra orthodox believe but at least in the non-orthodox jewish world like nobody really believes that like nobody really believes that that God is 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 out there listening to our prayers and doing stuff as a response. The the At ultra the orthodox time, world definitely believes in that. Who does? The ultra orthodox world definitely believes in that. Yeah, maybe. I'm not 100 percent sure, but but I'm not either. We'll find out next. We'll find out next week though when we have right. an ultra orthodox Rambam scholar. <laughs> but what we do know is that human beings are are more powerful than we've ever been before, and that Jews have have done quite well in terms of power. So now, what's interesting is that you could say, okay, so then we should just flush our whole tradition down the toilet because it was a waste of time that we were praying to a God that's not around anymore. Maybe he was back then, but he's not anymore. So the whole thing is a waste of time. Or you could say, no, wait a second, this is really interesting. 
when we were powerless, when we thought of ourselves as powerless, and we we had a very particular set of hopes and expectation and demands from the 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 being that we thought was powerful. And now that we are powerful, the shoe's on the other foot. Now, instead of looking up at God and saying, what do we expect God to give us? Because we don't believe that that God is out there to give that to us, even if we ever believed that God was out there. We certainly don't believe that he's out there now. But we, we should be looking in the other direction and looking at what the people who are in the position that we have been throughout history, the powerless, what they might be seeking from us. And if we expected God to listen to our prayers and give us that grace before chesed, right, then we ought to now turn around and give that chesed to, to the others who are begging us for it. They are begging us for it. We're not listening, mm-hmm. you know? And so it feels to me like we can now take the entire Jewish tradition, the entirety of the Jewish tradition, and just say, how would we have hoped that God would have behaved? And now let's hold ourselves to that standard as being created in the image of God and being uh, asked to walk in God's ways. What would that look like? And I don't know if you call that a religion or something else, but it, it feels like it could be a very powerful thing to say the Jews are the people who listen to the prayers of the of the downtrodden. That's a, right? a huge the, idea. The Jews are the greatest stranger lovers of all the peoples on the earth. Like I think that would be something that would attract a lot of people to Judaism. Um, and it's and it's not foreign to our tradition. It is the tradition. So I'm just saying that because I don't know what category you put that in, but it's not exactly religion. And I'm not saying that we're God by any stretch. What I'm saying is that we can learn you, you kind from of are. The, what <laughs> the religion, we can learn from the religion to create some a new version of Judaism that's not a religion, but that actually preserves all the pieces of the old Judaism. It just understands us to be now in the position of the hearer of of the plight of the pleas, you know, and and not the that not and not because I think it's also it's dysfunctional. Like what what it's it's kind of gross to me. Like the idea that all these like you know wealthy, successful, powerful people are spending their Saturdays, you know, begging, you know, for for you know begging for this God to have mercy on them, you know, at, at the same time that they that they don't listen to the to the plight of the poor. You know, that feels like it's exactly what the prophets were railing about. And, you know, I, I, I think that there's a way in which, um, you know, our, the current practice of Judaism is kind of a little weird to me. Uh, that's, it's a hugely powerful idea, what you just said. And I was with you actually until the very last sentence, um, because the people that I see... I too far. What's that? I always take it too far. <laughs> almost. You were almost there. Uh, no, over the line, Donnie. <laughs> Um, the, the people who I see who go to shul regularly, who go to synagogue regularly and pray regularly are also the people who give tzedakah the most. Um, and, and I think two other Jews, not necessarily in, in Israel for sure. But, uh, in, in America, not necessarily at all. Um, I, I know me and my community, my synagogue community give to the poor of our city. And, and there's a concept of give to the poor of your city first. Um, and, and we gather and donate tens of thousands of shekels every year, more probably hundreds of thousands just to the poor here in our city. Um, I know Jewish communities though around the U S donate to Jewish and non-Jewish causes in their cities. I mean, that that's definitely a huge thing. So I was with you until you said that part, because I don't think, you know, if, if giving to charity is, is a part of our religion, right? And so if, if, you know, 
that's an outcome of what you're doing. But but it's interesting to to reconceptualize it, like you said. And I've I've heard other, someone else say this: is that are we getting in a non-Jewish context, in a human context, are we getting to the point where we are gods now? Like, I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, the the amount of control we have over the world and over other people. I mean, how far down the rabbit hole do you want me to go right now? Not too far because I have to go to the bathroom soon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is where, this is where uh, usually I would delve into the concept of uh, the development of AI. Singularity. Elon Musk, singularity, neural, neural networks. That could, and, be, that could be a whole other conversation and, and, we and, could get and, into. And now we go into the woo-woo and it, it just gets, we go derailed from here. But I mean, I, yeah. I do feel like COVID, I do feel like COVID should humble us as to any kind of notion that we are gods. I, I don't, I always want to try to be super careful to make it clear that I am not saying we are gods. What I'm saying is that God is not, that almost everybody believes that God is not out there uh, helping us anymore. And what we know for sure is that there are people who need our help. And so it feels to me like a reorientation of our mission from mm -hmm. being one that's about kind of placating God uh, and we're celebrating God or whatever, being grateful to God, even we could be a little grateful. Um, but uh, but but re really reorienting to saying that the vast majority of what our sort of holy work is about is um, is is, um, you know, get, giving the mercy that we wished God would give us. To it, others. It's a beautiful idea. That would be very, that would be very attractive. It's it's a it's a beautiful idea. And I think it it's I think it's there. Um, I, I think I think one of the core beliefs that that does cross I think all denominations is that you know we were given agency, and for those of us who have blessings, especially for those of us who are fortunate, is to use that agency and those blessings to help those who aren't fortunate. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it's a beautiful idea. I think it's a beautiful concept. It is I think it's something that can unite all Jews whether you believe or not and whether, you know, which kind of Judaism you believe in, if we're looking for some kind of uniting um, thing here. And we remind our listeners that we accept donations of all kinds. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I was listening to a comedian today and, and he said something jokingly about how, you know, you always have that, like the story of the plane crash and there's like the one person who survives the plane crash. And I'm like, God saved me, you know, God was with me the whole time. I was like, wait, where was he with the other 150 passengers? You know, um, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe <laughs> we need to take a little more responsibility on ourselves. Um, we wow. actually, just a quick note on our podcast, like we actually, um, we were sort of excited that we came up with this. We, we did a series on philanthropy. And one of our conclusions was that we actually were urging people to give less Jewish philanthropy and more philanthropy outside the Jewish world, even though, like, of course, I, I, we might have even said it in a jokey way, but if you are going to give Jewish philanthropy, give some yeah, to, give us. Us. to <laughs> us. It's interesting, though, because I, 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 a lot of my clients are Jewish federations and philanthropic organizations. Dan, Dan's got to go. He's, he's got an emergency situation to deal with. But, it, I, you know, there seems to be, again, another unorganized thought in my mind. You know, ph philanthropy is in many ways tied into the the class or the generation that's giving the most of it so for for the jewish donor class it seems that the people that are probably my father's age baby boomers i mean uh, are, are giving the lion's share i think to jewish causes still they have a, a particular set of values and they see it as a part of their judaism religiously to give to jewish causes and it's interesting to think in a 
different Jewish world, uh, you know, the, of the type that we're talking about throughout this episode, if newer generations of Jews would would uh, would give to other causes that are not Jewish, or does the removal of classical Jewish faith frameworks take away people's desire to even give? Mm-hmm. Does the me, does the me, you know, generation I, you know, the, the me generation think to themselves, you know, are we going, are we going to a place where people are just less inclined to give because maybe they have less, it's harder mm-hmm. to be socially mobile. They feel like, you know, why should I give to other people? They don't help me. I'm not going to help them. Like, it, you know, how much does the framework of organized religion play into somebody's desire to give his or her resources to others? I think it plays a big role. I mean, the studies that show that, um, you know, for example, in the U.S., that uh, conservatives give a lot more money, Christians, you know, I mean, people of religious people give a lot more money. I remember uh, once uh, going into this mega church, and it was amazing. And uh, it's so I amazing. Saying, I agree. And I remember I saying to the person who who uh, was showing me around, I said, like, what? How much are the dues here? You know. And he said he like looked at me like I was crazy. Like we don't have dues. So dues. You know, like that people give from the from the spirit of their heart. You know. Do you, know, from- do you, do you ever watch? Um, sometimes when I'm really bored at night, I turn on. We have this thing called METV here in Israel, which is like it's an oh, yeah. evangelical. Like, okay, yeah. so, so Christian I, broadcasting for the. So boys. I watch televangelists sometimes. Uh-huh. I think it's super, super entertaining. Just from yeah. a pure entertainment value. Have you ever heard the name Crespo Dollar? No. Okay, so there's a guy. His name is Crespo <laughs> Dollar. This is legit. He's a, he's a televangelist. He has, and he's not in any way, I, I don't think this is unique to him, but he's gone and convinced his people, his followers, that they should give generously to him so that he can buy a Gulfstream 5 jet so that he can continue to spread the word of Christ. In, in in other places in faraway places and his his name is Crespo and his last name is Dollar. Uh, <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard stories like that actually, other stories like that. But that but actually, I mean, I think that that's sort of one point that's relevant here is that in the history of religion, right? I mean, I think that a lot of the sort of quote philanthropy that was being demanded. I mean, including including Judaism. Like, I'm my wife and I now are doing the Daf Yomi, you know, reading the daily page of Talmud and. And it's so clear, you know, so much of it is about how you would have to tithe and you would have to give all kinds of contributions, but it was mostly going to the priests, you know, like it was, was, some of it was going to the poor for sure, but the vast majority of it was going to the priests and like, and not in a bad way, not necessarily that they were getting rich, although I think they were, but it's kind of a reasonable thing to say, um, (laughs) you know, you should support the clergy. Okay. You know, that's fine. Um, But 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 you know when you start to say well this is teaching these like deep values uh, I'm not totally sure that it was in its origin now the so the more interesting question is is whether it could be you know and and I think it could be so I would love to see like I love the idea of tithing you know which in Judaism is maaser right so it's not it's not like we think of tithing or as a Christian concept we think of grace as a Christian concept but although those, those are all very Jewish Hebrew, concepts yeah yeah those in Hebrew are maaser and chesed you know so. Yeah. So anyway, but um, baptism is so, also originally a Jewish concept. Uh, yeah, all, right. All of these so things. the idea that 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 you would tithe is is powerful. Not not only that, but the idea that we tithe tithing is not a uh, act of generosity. Tithing is a recognition that that 
that that 10% doesn't actually belong to us. And, and so yeah. if you don't, it's not if you do tithe, you are to be praised. It's if you don't tithe, you are like a, a robber. This you know, is, you are you are taking you are taking money that doesn't belong to you and and using it. That's theft. So, so I think that I could imagine. So now I think that part of what doesn't what doesn't appeal to the younger generations today is that they do I think understand and like I, I said it a little. I wasn't really joking. I mean, I, I think it is true that that a lot of the philanthropy or or tzedakah that's given by highly involved Jews meaning people that go to shul every week, et cetera, is going uh, lion's share to Jewish causes. And I think that's out of whack. I think it's not ethical. I think it's not, I think it's not a good system that says, you know, you should give, uh, you should give philanthropy, but you should give most of, it, most of it to us. Like the way that I understand Judaism is Judaism should be a tool for how to live a good life. And it's like it's like going to school. It's like if you're and by the way, I mean, Jews are out of whack on this in terms of like day school. I think day school tuition is is out of control, because if, if you have to pay so much money to just keep Judaism going, then you say, well, what's the point of keeping Judaism going? Oh, it's good for the world. But I'm not, it's not actually good for the world because I don't have any money left over to give to charity outside of this. And I hear this all the time from people like I wish I could give more tzedakah, but I'm giving so much money to day school. I'm like, well, maybe we have a problem here, you know, and so um so so that's where that's where our idea of on the podcast was like you should give only 10% of your 10%. Like I think people should tithe and they should give no more than 10% meaning 1% of their of their of their income to Jewish causes and the other 9% should go to general uh, you know tzedakah. That that would be an interesting world. Now if if in a world like that Jewish causes would probably have less money. So what would we do? We we either would have fewer of them, or maybe people would wake up and say we need to have more Jews, so they get more excited about <laughs> about conversion. You know, but well, do, but do you it, see? It, do you it see? Feels to me like there's some work to be done there. Do you see membership in, let's say, a Jewish community structure or school tuition, day school, or whatever kind of school tuition? As do you do you look at that as tzedakah, or do you look at that as you're paying for a service? Because it could be seen as both. I mean. Yeah. Right. Part of the reason why you're you're doing is to keep these institutions in place, um, but but I think one of the things that is going to be happening soon, and and I and this is a big part of of the change that's happening in American Jewry is, it's not sustainable in its current format, um, right. and it has to it has to change. You know, we talked about technology and the democratization that it affords us. You know, the kind of the introduction of the the things we can do online for so much cheaper. The things that, you know, you know, I, I write about a lot of these communities that many of them don't have buildings and don't want buildings because, it, you know, how much mm -hmm. of right. temple or synagogue membership fees go to just maintaining a building that's empty? You know, you're talking about the new the newer organization. Yeah, as, as just one example. Yeah. But the, the, what you can yeah. do with online learning, right? What you yeah. can do with online learning, by the way, that for me, that's it. That's something that I do connect to. I can't connect to online prayer but I can connect online learning, right? And and the kind of platforms, by the way, who are you learning Dafyomi with? What kind of, on your own, or is there like a platform you're using? Uh, well, I'm doing it with my wife and we, we use Safari, you know, instead of buying the Talmud volumes, we're sure. using Safari for the you, text. Is there, is there a, a, like a program or you're, you're just literally going through it page by page and learning? Yeah, no, there's like a calendar and it tells you what page. Oh, very cool. On. Very cool. um, there um, are podcasts and things like that that you can yeah. do, but we only have we're not 
we're not that committed. Yeah, we're just kind of no, uh, no, reading it's, it's, it and getting through it's it. It's very yeah. cool. And Safari, we've talked about this a few times on the show, is is unbelievable. Um, I, I was I was doing um, I was teaching Mishnah until COVID at my kids' school, and we were doing a daily Mishnah uh, thing before the school started. And for me, it was really cool because it was the first time I was learning Mishnah. So mm-hmm. I would have to study uh, Mishnah and then learn how to teach it to first, mm-hmm. second, third, fourth graders. Um, and, and that was just a fun thing for me. It was another way for me to connect with my kids and also, you know, show them a good example. But it was, like I never learned Mishnah. So and yes. I, was, I was using an app um, on my phone to do it mm-hmm. because I do. I do. Mishnah is a lot smaller than Talmud. Do you still learn even though COVID I, I got very late? I got very lazy with COVID and I let I let myself get distracted but when you when you said you know Daf Yomi and I've seen a lot of people doing these kind of programs and podcasts and and this and I was trying to do nine two nine for a while and, and just like the kind and I I want to get back to it. it's just something that I got very lazy about um, and maybe maybe I'll try to get into Daf Yomi maybe maybe my wife will be interested in it too um, that that's uh, it's a nice it's a nice way to have a thing to do every morning with it your is, wife it is uh, the, our our mornings don't overlap our, our nights don't overlap maybe on Shabbat we'll do a Daf Yomi on you know, once a week on Shabbat or whatever. Um, Actually, it's been helped this year because we haven't had to drive the kids to school. So, yeah, no, we're yeah. we're back to working physically now here, uh-huh. and she's a teacher, so she's a, she's gone in the mornings, and then um, at night we're doing things like this. Um, I, I want to, as we start to wrap up, um, as we as we start to wrap up here, I, I kind of want to get into if it's okay with you. We we talked a lot of kind of in meta terms about where Judaism's going. Um, I, I kind of want to geek out with you a little bit on just something that you you were we talked about at the beginning and that you've been doing on your podcast lately, and that's this whole series on on biblical scholarship and biblical criticism that you got into. Can we can we kind of come back to that? Um, of of take us what you kind of learned or discovered, or maybe if it's things you already knew, things that kind of stood out for you from the the series of really fascinating guests and i'll, I'll encourage uh our listeners uh, to check it out if they haven't yet you had a whole I, I listened to probably four or five episodes of that series i don't know how many episodes there were um some really cool stuff um i don't know if you want to take us through some highlights or kind of like the arc of if if there was like a method metho- methodology to how you put that series together and and maybe if we could condense it for us and for our listeners i think that could be cool yeah, I mean, it wasn't super methodological. Uh, one of the things that we struggle with is to figure out, you know, how to how to convey to people like the richness of what's out there and what you could learn and discover uh, without being, you know, without it being too much. And maybe people don't want to, you know, have so much on this topic. And so we kind of try to break it up and have different angles. And, you know. Uh, I wish actually that there was more of these kind of books available as audiobooks because um, I think a lot more people would be able to access a lot of this material. There's some wonderful books like Richard Elliott Friedman's classic is called Who Wrote the Bible? And then there's a professor, Israel Finkelstein, in in, uh, in Tel Aviv University, who's written a book called uh, Unearthing the Bible and also David and Solomon. And these are wonderful books. And they're actually easy Let's to read. They're the just show. not available as audiobooks. So Israel so, Finkelstein is a, is a, is a uh, in the world of archaeology here in Israel. He's a giant. Let's get him he's, on the show. He, and and he always I remember from my tour guide course years ago. He was always the, you know, he's he's the more you know 
pragmatic, rational, let me, you know, I'm going to use the facts to, you know, yeah. as they appear to to paint the picture. And it's always in striking contrast to the biblical narrative. Well, there's two and, schools of archaeology, and one that assumes the Bible then goes back to try to prove it, right. and the other one that doesn't assume anything and only constructs so what it can from what it finds. He's that one. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, I think that, so So the most, the, the thing to really sort of understand about biblical criticism or, you know, a, academic biblical scholarship is that it's obviously starts with people coming to the text with an open mind. So if you believe that God wrote the Torah, then it's like the end of the story. Then, and then, and then the, but then the issue comes up is like, well, if God wrote the Torah, why does it say that Noah brought the animals two by two onto the ark? And over here, it says seven by seven. You say, oh, well, because it was seven by seven was the kosher animals or the pure animals, two by two was the, so you can you can kind of find explanations for everything, but those explanations are not in the Torah. Right. So the, the way that you're getting to that explanation is because you're starting with an axiom of saying God wrote, you know, or God wrote or- And, and then how do you make it make sense? Yeah. And how do you make it make sense when there's clearly contradictions, right? And the academic biblical scholars come to it and they say, well, I'm going to not assume that God wrote the Torah. Now, that doesn't mean that if some, you know, smoking gun came out and showed me, proved to me that God wrote the Torah, then I'll believe it. But in the interim, I'm going to read the Torah like I would read any other book, uh, any other ancient book. And I would say, what what can I find here that um, helps me understand how this was written, given that we don't have a history, you know, of behind the scenes telling you everything, how it how it came to be. And so... There's actually, in, in a way, there's two kinds of archaeology going on. There's the kind of archaeology that Israel Finkelstein does, where he goes to Megiddo and he literally digs things up. And there have been things that have been done, dug up that are really interesting. Like, for example, there's this um, writing that says something about Beit David, the house of David. Uh, by the way, there's a uh, show, uh, Yehudim Baim episode where they say, no, it actually says Beit Hadud from the uh, Big Lebowski, you know. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, that it's a, that's a digression. But um, so they so they read that and they say, oh, well, it says Beit David and they can kind of see when it's from, uh, you know, based on carbon dating or whatever. And they say, well, it's from not the time of David, but it's from a little bit after David. So this suggests that way back when there there actually was something called the House of David. So that doesn't prove that there was a David, but it suggests very highly that there really was somebody named David, you know, so that's good information from archaeology. However, you also find things in archaeology like there's something called the. Um, the uh, Merneptah uh, steel, steely, mm-hmm. uh, and Merneptah was a king of Egypt, and it says that Israel has been wiped out; it has no no descendants. So that's a little bit uh, in conflict with the fact that that there was an Israel uh, after we, that. So what what's going on there? So I, archaeology can be like a mixed bag. I always used right? to ponder uh, all, all the assumptions and all of like the logic of archaeology is that we find artifacts like like you know Beit David. And then we 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 deduct you know understandings from them, and I and nobody ever considers the the possibility that there was just some prankster two thousand <laughs> years ago that was like I'm going to throw these guys off. I'm going to write something. I'm going to put it in a really obvious place. And when they dig this right. up, they're going to be like, Manaftach says the Jews were wiped out, and and that's going to change the whole way that. But it's interesting, and I think they have to account for that because if you if you look at what people will dig up from us two thousand years from now, I mean, how can you make sense of anything? <laughs> it's just so right. crazy. <laughs> right. Um, um, you know, but if if there is something that says like Beit David, then you know, so David, David may have been like a mythical character, but what you know is that the myth started as 
long ago as when that finding was from, unless it was right. a prankster, like you're saying. So, you know, so, so you can find things from archaeology. And then from the archaeology of the text, you can also kind of dig into the text. And classically, right, one of the earliest things that they saw was that there are parts of the text that refer to God with the name Elohim. And there are parts of the text that refer to God with the name Yetevavhe, the for the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God, right? And they tended to be like, and they weren't like randomly strewn about. It tended to be you would have a chunk of the story that would refer to Elohim and a chunk of the story that would refer to Yetevavhe, and they would kind of pull that apart. And they found that almost you can you can almost have two independent books, mm. one mm. of which uses God as Elohim and one uses God as Yetevavhe. And they start, and that was the initial finding, you know, and then you start to sort of pull that apart and you say, well, can I see things in these two books that are that are similar, right? Like I pulled them apart based on the fact that they use different names for God. But it turns out that all the ones where they're using the name Elohim for God make characters from the Northern tribes heroes. And all the ones that they, that say the name of God, Yetevavhe, make the, the characters that are heroes are the Southern tribes people. So you're like, well, I didn't actually pull them apart based on Northern Southern. I pulled them apart based on these two names of God. So the fact that they have the, the one seems to be pro North and one seems to be pro South, that that's not an accident. That, I mean, it could be random. It could be a prankster, but it seems like there's a good chance that actually these were two independent works, one from the North and one from the South that got wo woven together at some point for some reason, you know, and then you start to say, well, what would be the reason why they might've been woven together? And then there's like speculation. You say, well, what do we know about when they might have been woven together? There's, there's, um, we know that the first temple was destroyed. The Northern Kingdom was destroyed about 150 years before the Southern Kingdom was destroyed. And then Israel Finkelstein comes along and finds archaeological evidence that the population of Jerusalem expanded greatly after that period. So it's like, well, who are these people that all of a sudden moved to Jerusalem? Well, it makes sense north. that they were yeah. actually the refugees yeah. from the Northern Kingdom. So what do we know about times when a huge refugee population comes, like think of the Russians coming to Israel sure. or something? We know that you kind of have to find a new way to weave the culture together. They, they bring their lores with them and their stories with it. them and their customs with them. And, yeah, you and, know, for me is is kind of like I I grew I I don't know I guess I've I never really thought about the whole like northern southern kingdom you know historical approach to to I just never thought about it and it's fascinating it's it's like fascinating to think about it in those terms of of like you know if the Bible I, I guess if you're coming at it from that kind of approach it, it's it's just yeah, I never thought about it. And just thinking about it, like what you said at the beginning of Moses being the hero of the North, or was it Aaron being the hero? Moses of the, the hero of the North, yeah. And, and like how everything is just kind of, how do you meld these two universes together? Right. And they and they were cousins. They, they were already relationships. So it could be like as if, you know, there was, well, like a huge Russian aliyah, like these are Jews. I mean, you know, most of them in some fashion. And so they're not like just random people that showed up there. They're Jews and they came here and we have things in common. We both have ancestors from, you know, Lithuania or whatever, you know, or from, you know, the Spanish Inquisition. We have a shared story. I don't know, whatever, you know, we say, OK, so we're going to go back there and highlight that and, and make that important to our story. So now there's these like different schools of thought because there's what's called the minimalists, for example, that say, oh, well, like David never existed. It was not, it's just all legends. You know, the, a lot of these stuff, like it's just complete legends and didn't really, there's no truth to them. And then there's these kind of people that are more like, um, 
scholar, academic biblical scholars, but they're not, they're not minimalists. I don't know if they call themselves maximalists or whatever, but they say, no, there really was this united kingdom under David and Solomon and Saul, Saul, David and Solomon. And then, and then that was uh, broken apart. And then there was the North and the South. And then they kind of, you know, came back together after the North was destroyed. And then there's like in between that says, look, Saul, Saul was a, um, Saul was, was some Benjamin, you know, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was like some kind of king, which in the ancient world, the king was more like what we call a mayor. So Saul was like the mayor of Benjamin mm-hmm. and David mm-hmm. was like the mayor of Judah and Governor, Sol- Solomon yeah. was like David's son. So he was the mayor of Judah. And so like they existed, but there was never this big United Kingdom. Oh, right. So, you know, there are all these different perspectives and scholars, they all fight about this, you know, like they say about, um, you know, academia, like the stakes are so low. So the fights are so hot. <laughs> you know, so, hot you know, things like that. so, you know, there's a lot of fighting about these, these ideas, but I just, I'm fascinated by all of them. I think it's great. I think we are too. Yeah. Um, and, and I've been enjoying listening to that whole series. Um, so, so great job. You and, you and Lex did a fantastic job, uh, putting, putting those together. Um, I think we've been going for three hours. <laughs> we're, we're going on three hours and I think, uh, 25 minutes. So we, we promised you a long podcast and it, and it certainly was. Um, I, I feel like we could talk to you for hours more, but, uh, we're, we're going to wrap this one up and maybe we'll continue with you uh, at another time in the future. Um, really, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fascinating and mind-blowing uh, as, as I expected it would be. So you're in Chicago, so we'll wrap up with a Chicago question. How long have you lived in Chicago? Uh, about 15 years. All right, so like, are you disappointed by the disappearance and the closing of hot dogs? Uh, no, I have to admit that I, I live on the south side of Chicago ah, and okay. I, don't, I don't have a lot of uh, experience up there. I see, I see. So I can't go anywhere with my closing question. I can't do it. <laughs> which was? Which was to, to ask about what if, what, what is replaced. Oh, hot dogs. you know what? I've got I've got a closing question for you. You, you said you're originally from New York. Yep. New York pizza or Chicago pizza? <laughs> Definitely New York. I I, I think <laughs> yeah, that I might nice. actually prefer New Haven pizza though. I have there was just like. Huh? A beats. Yeah. A beats. There was yeah. this like time where, where there was, there's this time where, where we had this pizza and it's my birthday coming up. And I told my wife, like, my dream is to find this pizza again that we had somewhere in Chicago that I think was New Haven pizza. And I just have been thinking about it ever since. And we're going to track that down. New Haven pizza is the bomb. A beats. I don't know what it is. No idea. I'll, explain. I'll, look, I'll look it up later. Uh, they, they don't call it pizza. They call it a pizza. A pizza like a- no, I, I get a, it. Yeah. I get so it. I get, I get it. <laughs> awesome. So we we uh, we thank you, Dan Levinson. We encourage um, our listeners, if they want to geek out on some really cool Jewish thinking and amazing speakers, check out your podcast, Judaism Unbound. Dan, how can people find you online, obviously? A Jewish yeah, they can live, find but- the podcast at uh, www.judaismunbound.com, and they can find Jewish Live currently at www.jewishlive.org. They should be careful, Jewish Live, not Jewish Lives, because Jewish Lives is a awesome uh, series of biographies. Um, <laughs> but jewishlive.org is our uh, live streaming video site. I, I think we're planning to consolidate this, the site sometime soon, and, and they'll Judaism Unbound will be the, the name of the consolidated thing. So if people want to just remember one, it's JudaismUnbound.com. Awesome. Very cool. And I have a feeling we will be speaking again uh, soon uh, as I will brainstorm with you about digital Judaism and the continued future of Judaism, something that I think definitely interests both of us. And uh, this has just been, yeah, it's been fascinating. And, and we thank you. 
and uh, yeah, we will you. You. we will see everybody next week on Juanced. Awesome. Take care, Dan. Take care. Bye-bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.